Where six random fans from around the British Isles get together to talk about anything and everything Detroit Lions. My name is Anthony Fitzpatrick, and I am joined by a now unmuted Matthew Turner for episode 112, not another Stafford comeback movie. That's funny, and I still say it is, even though Matt doesn't get it. So, hey ho. Based off not another teen movie. I get it. I get it. And also, by the way, when I cut this, and I'm just laughing over the intro. No one's going to understand why. <laughs> it's all good. Um, yeah, yeah, this was all going well on the college podcast. I know. So, you know, you've, just, you've just bought your chaos into into my world here. So, Absolutely. You know. And I mean, you can see behind me the chaos that is ensuing. I normally have... Actually, I'm not going to say it's even not mess. It normally is mess, but it's not quite like this. Apologies if you are watching on YouTube or Twitch. Um, I am in the process of a house move. We get our van on saturday and then that'll be it and i'll be in my new place and hopefully i'll have 10 times better the internet than i do currently which i'm hoping will make this an even smoother process um my place is just a mess this is the one room in the house i've not i've, I've literally moved all the rubbish in my house to here because i've cleaned everything out and it is a bit messy and i'm like right i've got to get a proper lion set up in here so I, that that's my next plan around the house when i'm not planning the college shows or anything like that NFL, se- yeah, NFL season has finished, and now we can take the opportunity of actually getting on with what we should have been doing all along, which is living. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, you say that, but now the college football podcast is just going through the roof, the amount of stuff you've got to do on there. I mean, today it's the we've done about the combine, we've done about pro days. I've not even had a chance to go through the uh, HCBU Legacy Bowl that we're on, which is something that people need to watch, by the way. I'll, I'll cheaply plug the college podcast before we go, but this week it's the HBCU um, game that they have on. That's the higher black. Um, historically black college and universities game. We've talked about it on the podcast before. We did the combine a few weeks ago. Their all-star game is this week. And there are two or three, possibly four names on that list who I can see getting drafted by the Lions come April time with some of the late round flyers. Um, that'll be on the NFL Network all week. So do watch it. It is really good fun. And then next week, if you didn't hear me mention on the podcast before, we actually have our first guest coming on the podcast next week. He is from Germany. So we're having a England-Germany collaboration on here, which is going to go completely well. He is actually an American. He's a Michigan State uh, Spartans podcaster. His name is Kevin Parker of the Standing Room Spartans podcast. We're going to have a massive show about the Big Ten. We're going to look at all the draft prospects from the Big Ten team by team. And then we're going to look in the future, all the recruiting classes from this year, see where the future of the Big Ten is potentially heading. So that's going to be a lot of fun. If you're a Michigan State fan, bring your questions. I'm sure he'll be happy to answer them. If you're a Wolverines fan, come take the mick out of him. He says he's used to it. So you've got free free reign to do what you like. That's going to be fun (laughs) next week. So join us for that. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm hoping actually we're going to get quite a few guests on that show in the run-up to the draft. If we can get any... (sighs) 
analysts or any draftnik guys. I think that'd be really, really cool. So evolution in the pod. Thanks to Ash for telling me I was muted early doors. Hey to everyone in both the chats on Twitch and YouTube if you are watching live. Really appreciate you guys. Um, just to kick us off with a bit of housekeeping. Don't forget our Discord channel. Really good place to um, have a Lions community. We've got several uh, people from other fan groups who are really good value too. So we've got a Vikings fan on there who's really good fun. He's been on this podcast several times before and is probably one of the funniest people I've ever met. So, you know, the Lions community, but also some really good characters in there as well. And as we go into this offseason, the draft, if you want to post mock drafts or anything like that, if you want to ask any pet questions for us to get on the pod, it's a really good place to go. So hit us up on Twitter, DM us. Uh, it's open there to DM us if you want to do so, or I'll probably tweet out a link later on tonight. Um, we've just mentioned as well, as you say, the College Football Podcast. And what did you talk about today? You talked about what you didn't actually get to, but what did you get to today? So we did our awards for the season. Um, Ryan came up with a list of college awards, players, teams, coaches, etc. So we went through that, which was good fun. First time we've ever done that. Um, we went through the pro day schedule. So obviously, you know, guys over guys over in the States will probably know. But over here, the road to the draft now has two more stops. You have the Indianapolis Combine happening in two weeks, which we talked about there. That's a week-long event. Um, all positional groups go there in different little clusters together. They have five days there. Obviously, the big day is the athletic testing, which you can see on the NFL Network, which is really good for seeing some of your favorite guys. The measurements come out there. And colleges are notoriously bad for measuring their athletes wrong to make them appear a little more better on paper. And then you get to Indianapolis and you are exposed. I'll uh, Kenny Pickett and his hand size is going to come up there and people aren't going to like it very much, but it's a good thing. So we highlight what goes on there, some of the athletic events they do, what you want to look out for, which is good fun. And then the pro day scene comes afterwards. That is your workout at your college. It's not a, in Indianapolis. It's in a bit more familiar surroundings to yourself. Um, that's your last chance to impress the scouts there. And then you go on to the draft. So we go through both of those in a bit of detail. Um and then I say we were going to talk about the HCBU, HBCU All-Star Game today, but we're going to do that on a future episode. But there's a lot to get your teeth into there, especially if you're new to the path to the draft. Yeah, so it was a really terrific show. Obviously, it happened just before this one. If you missed it, please do go and check that out. Also, please do uh, like the podcast anywhere you can whether it's a podcast in general or an episode in particular really appreciate you guys doing that and like Anson on the college pod we have just achieved affiliate status on twitch and i'm not going to plug you guys for doing paid for subs that's not what i'm about but i do know that if you have amazon prime and you sub to that they give you a free twitch prime sub every single month so that doesn't cost you anything but it does move to dollars of your subscription from amazon to us and if you guys do that if you do do amazon prime and don't use it for anyone else then i'd really appreciate you guys doing that and it doesn't cost you a penny so that that would be really great um and if you have any ideas for custom emotes i can make those in twitch as well we've already had a few ideas i need to go ahead and make them but with me moving house i've gotten behind there's a couple of ones of dan campbell and, and sheila's face palm which are fairly <laughs> funny if i do say so myself right Let's move And me on. and my awards outfit. Yes, yes, we need to do that. I need to get a screen grab of that because that was just hilarious. You didn't wear it tonight. You said you were going to. 
Uh, yeah, I did, but then Ryan didn't wear anything there, and I'm like, I don't want to like stand out like a sore thumb again. Plus, my house is really hot at the minute because we've got a storm, a really bad storm blowing outside, and it's freezing, so the heating's on full, and I just I would have died of heat exhaustion. So I yeah. couldn't do it today. Yeah, I'll do it on another episode to make up for it. I was wondering actually why the frame weight rate was dropping every now and again on the um, on this pod. And if you are watching live and is dropping in and out a little bit, I do apologise. I think it is due to the aforementioned storm that we're experiencing winds of up to 70 miles an hour tonight. So if I do drop out for just a moment, I do apologise. Um, you know there's a lot of Americans there going, 70 miles an hour? What, what What's that? That's just a dry, like, gust of wind. Yeah, here, we're not, it's we're not built here. for it. No, we're not here. It is a huge issue. You know, 70 is up to 85 miles an hour up here. That is gale force. That is deadly to life. That's how bad it is here. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, because we don't deal with that sort of wind on a day-to-day basis, the buildings aren't built for it. The the countryside doesn't stand have to stand up to it as much. So when it comes, it is pretty disastrous at times, you know. So... Oh, and for my internet, apparently. So, again, apologies if there is any disruption. Right, let's move on, and we'll talk about the week in Lions News. And we'll start off with something which actually dropped the night that we last did the main podcast about 10 days ago now, nine days ago. So we wrapped up, and then the most amazing day of news happened with Aubrey Pleasant interviewing here and there, which I'll come on to later, and us speculating about who the, ty- uh, who the OC might be before it was revealed that the tight ends coach, Ben Johnson, was to be promoted to offensive coordinator. Now, he was someone that we had all basically said was the obvious candidate to get the job, that, you know, he had the audition at the senior vault. It looked like it was an audition for him. Uh, how much they talked about him through the second half of the season in terms of how much the players liked him, how much the offense seemed to come on after he started having an input, it seems like a no-brainer hire, but I think a lot of us have some reservations in terms of the fact that maybe we didn't think the Lions organisation would be brave enough to, after having someone so experienced, go in the complete opposite direction and take someone who has no coordinator experience. And were you surprised, even though this seemed like the obvious move, that they actually went and did it? Because I was surprised. Like, I thought that for all the sense in the world that it made, that they might kind of keep him in, them, him in their back pocket for another year or so. I'm not surprised in the slightest. I think for me, continuity is the name of the game now. We we bought in our entire staff pretty much last year. Outside of Ben Johnson and outside of Hank Fraley, every coach that came here was new and we got lucky with the amount of them that we landed on. You know, we you know, we landed on the defensive coordinator. We landed on his backup. We've landed well on special teams. You know, we, we've done well pretty much across the board. It was only Anthony Lynn who was really a massive failure in his first year. And I think now is the time where we need to, you know, have some continuity. We need to start looking at promoting from within, keeping stability within the organization, and then bringing people in lower down building them into what we're about, the culture here, molding them how we want them to be, and then letting them ascend through the ranks. You know, I think just bringing in from outside all the time can cause disruption. And Johnson showed that him and Dan Campbell work in sync together. And that's huge. As a head coach, with your coordinators, you've got to be in sync together. And it seemed like they had found a rhythm where they could work together both calling a few plays here and there, creating an offense which looked a lot better than it did before. And I think 
you know, better the devil you know in this case. And it's not even the devil, it's a good thing. You know, I'd, I'd rather stick with what I know works and those two together work. I'm glad he's got the position. Hopefully he will be able to take over a few more of the play calling duties as he goes along and let Campbell get back to what he does as a head coach. But I like the hire. I like that it's internal. We've seen with Aubrey Pleasant potentially getting poached. We can't allow these stars to stay down in the ranks if they're there. And then when the opportunity comes to bring them in, you know, we've got to promote them. Because if we bought in another offensive coordinator, and then all of a sudden someone's like, oh, I want Ben Johnson as my offensive coordinator, we can't stop them. We can't afford to lose the talents. Like the second Glenn walks out the door, and go somewhere for a head coach job. If Pleasant's still here, you promote him before he even gets out the door that day. So I like the decision. I'm not surprised with the decision. You know, I, we're never going to see an influx of coaches from outside like we did again. We got really lucky and we now need to keep it in-house, do it the right way. So I'm happy. And I mean, immediately after the hire and in the sort of um, media week in the run-up to the Super Bowl, Zach Taylor kind of took it upon himself to take a moment to talk about Ben Johnson, who apparently he's been trying to hire for many years from the Lions. Um, they worked together with Dan in Miami um, in the 2015 and, and prior years. So they all know each other very, very well. Even though they know each other very, very well, I know that almost in the media week, people want to talk about anything other than the Super Bowl because they just get asked the same question over and over again. So maybe it was a good topic for them to kind of talk about at that time but I was surprised that Zach Taylor took the time out to say not only that he wanted to hire him but just you know how much he valued his mind and it kind of really vindicated what was going on because there was no need for him to do that and I mean you know what he's biased because they're friends but it felt real it felt genuine and the proof is in the pudding from what happened in the second half of this season Ben Johnson suits our system at the moment far more than Anthony Lynn did and who's to say that anyone else that we brought in wouldn't be worse than that and I mean it's a chance absolutely but everything the Lions have done in the last 12 months has been a risk like that the whole point is that this team is bad so we can afford to take chances with basically no downside and we're kind of still in that zone so I'm really excited by this but I do wonder, and do you think that anything's going to change? Do you think it's still going to be a sort of hybrid of them both calling plays? Or do you think that Dan might step back a little bit now? I think we're going to see the hybrid continue because this is Ben's first offensive coordinator position. So he's going to have to learn as well. But the modus operandi of this, of our brand now, of our franchise, is to gift opportunities to those who deserve it. And Ben Johnson deserves this opportunity. The fact that he was one of only two coaches kept on from the previous regime shows how much he was, you know, respected here. Same with Hank Fraley. They kept the two right, because the only other coach I'd have kept out of the last regime, apart from these two, would possibly have been Robert Prince. He, he would have been the only one, but these two have been here a while. They know the system. And like I say, he's earned the opportunity. And pretty much everyone who's come here has come here with no experience. So they have earned the opportunity to go into a position and they've repaid that faith. Pretty much everyone has. I mean, landing on one of your two coordinators in one year is a good thing. You know, you, you could have failed on them both, but we landed on one. We've potentially got another one already. So 12 months in, we could have two settled coordinators now. And we've got um, a guy in waiting for the defensive one, for the one who's likely to leave first. So we've got a good power structure in place now. 
you know, I'm just worried that if the O-line stays healthy this entire season and plays well, that Hank's going to start getting some looks and then we are screwed because we're not going to be able to keep him. But I just love having all these coaches here who are making us better, who have a point to prove. And this is the way you should do things in Detroit for too many years. And Luke made a point while I was on his podcast the other day. People have been coming here for the money, not because they want to be here. They come for the paycheck because we have to pay people to come here such as the market we are, but we've started a new revolution now with our staff where, you know, highly sought after prospects amongst staff want to come here. It's not just about money. They want to come here because they know they're going to get the opportunity to be able to thrive in this system and promoting Ben Johnson shows that if you come here and work hard as a skilled position guy, you can get a coordinator job and rightly so. So I just, I like everything about this. I like the reward to the guy who's been here. I don't like that we've just immediately gone out and looked. And I, I imagine they've interviewed a few guys, but we've seen on the pitch that Ben Johnson makes this offense better and he works in sync with Dan Campbell and that's critical. It really is. So I applaud the move. I'm really glad he's got it. And I look forward to seeing what they can do next year, especially if they can get a few more weapons in there. Because obviously they were hindered by the lack of receivers last year. Now we've had some good young guys break out. We're going to potentially spend a good draft pick on one, maybe get one in free agency. I really, really look forward to uh, to what's to come with all this. Yeah, I do too. I mean, is it bad that part of me is hoping that Aaron Glenn moves on at the end of next season and that we manage to do that before Aubrey Pleasant leaves? Because I kind of see it as inevitable that one of them is going to leave by the end of next season. And... With Glenn, if it's not next season, it will be the season afterwards. But Pleasant, if he doesn't get a DC job from us, he will get one next off season. I don't see any way around that. So I kind of hope it's here and we get the two third round picks for Aaron Glenn. And in the meantime, he does a terrific job with us in the next 12 months. Like, I'm not hoping he leaves because he's one of the best things that's happened to us at DC in a long time. But at the end of the day, if you make the Lions defense and this personnel group look passable, considering where expectations were at the beginning of the year, you're going to attract interest, and that's exactly what happens. And at the end of the day, this feels inevitable, whether we want it to happen or not, so we might as well embrace it. At the end of the day, you are not going to get a perfect staff at every position for five years, because if they're good staff, they're going to get a job elsewhere. It just doesn't happen in the NFL. You know, you are always going to lose high up-and-coming staff quickly if they can't nab one of the top jobs. The next best thing you can do is have a pipeline ready, have guys who are in those specialist positions waiting for the position, the opportunity to go up a notch, like Aubrey Pleasant is. That's a good thing to have. So, you know, losing Pleasant would be a massive blow right now. So, you know, you need to keep that pipeline intact. Because if we lose him now and lose Glenn next year, we've got to find two new guys. Yeah. But I like what they've done there, and I hope, that the same thing might be we're done with Fraley now, where Fraley's sort of groomed to be the next guy. If he can, if we can keep him two or three more years as an O-line coach and then promote him, we can do it again. So that's what we want to do. And hopefully if we get to next year, as I say, we get the, we also, and I don't, it's not all about that, but we get the comp picks for them both next year, if they stay. Because obviously you've got to have them two no, years. No, 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 no. So actually that was something I was going to address. And it's something that Eric mentioned on the Detroit Lions Breakdown podcast last week. Comp picks only happen for elevations to GM and head coach. So unless Pleasant jumps all the way to head coach, you don't get comp picks for Pleasant because he's not going to be elevated to head coach. No, you but I mean, we get we, we have the minimum required 
for them. Oh, I see what you... Right, okay. So if, we, if, we have the yeah. minimum required. Because obviously, my thing is Glenn's going to be a head coach. Aubrey jumps. Aubrey maybe does the jump next after that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes total sense. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Well, I no, thought no, you meant fine. if he no, gets coached for D. Because loads of people have said, if Aubrey Pleasant leaves, do we get a comp pick? And it's like, no. And in the current position next year, we don't get comp picks for him if he gets a DC job. That's not how this works. So it's only GM no. and head coach positions that get comp exactly. picks. And it's two I, of them as well. People say, oh, we get right a over comp two pick. Years. No. One comp pick in the third round in two subsequent years. So that's so how the Rams happens. get the second one for Holmes this year. Yes. Yeah. And uh, But anyway, I don't really think in terms of picks. I just want the best staff here. And yeah. we now have the best staff providing Pleasant ain't poached. We've got a system. Obviously, we, I think we've got the next guy in offense. So I think we've got two good guys who are ready to step up if and when required. But hopefully, Ben Johnson, he's going he's gonna to show his worth here. But I think he's the best pick out the lot. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to hire again from outside when we did it so many times last year. I want us to get into a habit of promoting from within and then bringing guys from the outside, start at the bottom, work their way up. That's how you should do it. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And... It's one of those things, isn't it? But I, I do feel like if Dan Campbell's best quality as head coach is his ability to make coaching hires, and that's it. Be a figurehead who kind of shouts a bit, but otherwise hires fantastic coaches. Well, we're on to an absolute winner then. If you can do that, hand over the reins to coordinators who are really good. And also, if you fail, because every single hire like that is a big risk because the responsibility you have to put on them when you do that but if they hire good guys, or if they don't work out, get rid of them quickly and move on to someone else, then this has the basis for something super, super successful in the next few years. So, Of course it does. You need as much stability as possible, and you give yourself that chance by you know, getting the right people in and at the right level. But right mm. now, Tank Frehley's probably not at the coordinate position, but he's a hidden gem, and you know he's there. And, you know, if you get... I think just this thing is just all about opportunity. Coaches know they can come here now and get an opportunity if they work hard, and that appeals to really talented guys. And we've yeah. seen that just across the board, and you'll see it. I mean, we've not seen much from Brunel or DeLeon, but they've now had the best skill positions to work with. We invest in linebacker this year, get some good guys in. We invest in quarterback. You might see them start to shine through as well. We, we hit on far more picks than we had any right to do so out of the mass wholesale changes in staff last year. Like I say, there's only Lynn who you can really class as a bust. The ones who you'd say, hmm, maybe not, like I've just said there, have not had the best positional groups to work with, some of them. And maybe it's just a bit of an addition of talent which will bring that through. But we're doing the right thing for the first time in forever. We're doing the right thing with the staff. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Carbor has just said on YouTube, I like that the team is evolving from within bringing new coordinators means they've got to relearn new terminology and it's mind-boggling how you can shoot yourself in the foot with that. Completely true. Completely exactly. true. Yeah. Exactly. It, it, it affects you less if you're bringing in a new um, tight ends coordinator because the tight end coordinator can come in and learn how things are done around here and pick up how things are done. There's less, there's less turmoil down there as there is at the coordinator position, as he says, a new coordinator coming and everything's in flux. But if all the ripples are at the bottom, instead of from the top working their way down, it's a lot smoother shit. Yeah. Can you imagine how cushy the tight ends job looks right now when you have Dan Campbell's head coach and Ben Johnson as OC? Like, must be the easiest job in the fucking world. 
Like, <laughs> yeah, and you've and, and you've got a top five tight end in the NFL to coach, who's already yeah. you know really really you know coming to the fore. So you know, I, I like it, and I think you're going to get another one in the draft this year. So you're a good position group to work with as well. I mean. I ain't going to be calling Hawk a top five tight end for some time. I hoped for it last year, and last year I would have put him at number five going into this season. And in the first couple of games, he did better than my expectations. And then, you know, the next 15 games were poor for me. And I hoped for it. He was our number one target last year. Yeah, I... I know that I am judging him harshly with that, but I would say that someone like Mark Andrews is probably the Ravens' biggest threat. You've got, you got Andrews, Andrews, Waller, Kittle, and Kelsey. Yeah. Anyone else after that? No. I don't think they have a legitimate claim to be in front of them. Uh, got it? No. Nope. Agree to disagree. In fact, I think even Ertz had a really well, had a better year than. Well, you've got a really good tight end to work with. Then you've got a really good yes. tight end to work with. As no, a new no, no disagreement there. And you're going to I get just a mean, good one in the draft. So I, I guess my thing with Hawk is that if he has a year like he had this year next year, the calls to trade him will grow exponentially. He has to do better. There's a certain section of the fan base who trade someone for a penny farthing, and you know that. Anyone of any talent for nothing. No, I, okay, that that's true too. But what I'm thinking about, and I mean, this is my personal opinion, so I'm not talking about anyone else. What I'm saying is, with considering where he was drafted, he's not lived up to that, I would say. But he can, and I believe he will. He's got the right work ethic. He's got the best coaching staff for him around him. If he can't do it here, I don't think he will anywhere, but I think he will. But if he doesn't, if he has a year like he had this year, the amount of money he will take to re-sign post-rookie contract, how much he will demand, is probably going to be too high for his production value for me, a position of luxury. And Just don't take the fifth year, then. Don't well, the I mean, I, I guess I would probably take the fifth year and then seek to trade. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I don't believe we'll get there. I think he will deliver. But it's just it's one of those really interesting off-season talks, I think, that we can have as we go through this. Anyway, let's move on and talk about the next item I have, which is that oh, it's a really nice thing. Penny Saul has made PFS top 101 players of 2021. He came 66 and was the second rookie tackle on the board. We all know that the Chargers left tackle ranked slightly higher on their boards. But that was a really promising sign, you know, that from... I know that there's a lot of PFF hate, especially from Luke's section of the Lions crowd, but they are someone who are potentially more factually based or more statistically based than some other outlets, that he is getting acclaim especially with their write-up talking about the fact that he had to play both at left and right tackle. You know, I think that it's really encouraging to see. I mean, he was one of the top tackles at all in football in this list. So, really encouraging signs. We all know how good he is, and he's only going to get better. That's the thing. You know me. We've had this debate so many times now. I, I, I used the eye test for me, and 
I see so much positivity from most of our rookies because of the eye test of watching them all year. So, you know, BFF have got him in there. That's great. But I know that what I've seen with my eyes this year says paints an even brighter picture. You know, I think we've got several very talented rookies who will very easily be up there soon. So, you know, good for Pedai. But, you know, it was just good for draft class altogether last year. It was a really good year, especially if those who started a little slower can really pick up this season. Oh, you're a little happening at once there. I like that. Um, little comment from Joey that I just wanted to address, um, which he says he's, well, likely, uh, he's saying that Trey Flowers is likely a June 1st cut, which means that the no. cap hit will be spread and you'll save more this year, but you don't get the cap saving until June 1st. I heartily disagree with that sentiment, mainly because we need the cap space now. And if we yeah. take the hit now, it means we don't have the hit in the in, in the subsequent season, which is when we want the space. So I'm like, you hear all of these guys say about June first cuts and what have you, and then you listen to Jeff Risden, Eric Schlitt, who basically say, "Well, we have to report on this because it's factually true." However, no one in reality ever talks about June first cuts because they almost never happen because they're pointless. There's a reason you're only allowed two of them. I believe teams are limited to two post-June cuts, and that is it. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. We need the money now. We only have 21 million in free cap to see us through here. We've got to take the draft class into that. And if we draft and if we trade down like some people want us to, and you've got three first round draft picks, you've got a high second, that's a lot of money you're going to be spending on your draft class. And we need money for free agency. We need to be able to re-sign Tracy Walker. We need to be able to re-sign Charles Harris. Those two alone are probably going to come in the region of 14 million. 15 million maybe that's two thirds three quarters of your budget wiped out then and there that's not even taking the draft class into consideration the best outcome is that we manage to find someone who will trade for flowers even if it's just a seventh we save an extra 1.6 million if we trade him before june so that's the ideal scenario but we can't wait till june for that money 21 million is not going to give us the weapons we need this year we need it now we need the 33 million to be able to go in with, especially if people want Marcus Williams or Chris Godwin or these other names I've seen floated around. You need the money right now. And he's the only guy who can really put up significant enough cap space to be worth cutting. He's got to go now and you've got to give his money to Harris. I said this on Luke's podcast the other day. You've got to set an example here. Charles Harris is a guy who's come here, embraced the city, got an opportunity in this team, worked his arse off for it and not let his effort level drop. We've just not had the same from Trey Flowers. He represents the last of the bad contracts from the Quintricia era. And we're paying off Jamie Collins six million next year already. Let's get Flowers on there because after in 12 months time, all those contracts will be gone. All of them. I don't want him spreading another two years because it's just money we don't need sitting on the sidelines. Take the hit now get the money that we so desperately need for free agency and move on. It makes no sense to me. Everyone has their opinions, but not to me to leave it. You, you need the money now. You ain't got enough to get through the draft because you've got to be by March 16th before free agency opens, you have got to be under the cap limit for the season. You know, you need to be down there. You need your cap savings now and you're still trying to buy people then as well. Yeah. It's critical that you've got all the money by then if you want to spend it. I mean, at the end of the day, 
we had a lot more cap space. We had almost 30 million in cap space. And then we signed a load of guys to futures deals. And that hits the cap. So futures deals are promises to give contracts to people once free agency opens. So they're technically not contracts now, but they will be. And what that did is take our our list of committed players up from about 41 to about 55. So 48. For, is it 48? Okay. We've got 48 committed players next season. So you need to flesh out, you know, you've got to pay those million dollar deals. Spot track covers at 48 with three under. But, you know, there's still guys like Charlie Taupameo on there from last year. Um, obviously, you know, and then you've got all your free agents you need to re-sign as well from this year. There's a lot that goes into the monetary side of it. But I think Spot track had us at 48 players for next season. Yeah, possibly. and... Yeah, so over the cap, I have 49, so I beg your pardon. But okay, so my point was, after the first few guys that we sign, however many there are, after that, you then don't take the full cap hit on everyone you're signing because you're effectively cutting someone from the 53-man roster in order to get there. So the amounts are about 700,000 to a million at that bottom end. So everyone we sign, including the rookie class after the first three or four guys are about 700,000 to a million cheaper than you think against the cap because someone yeah. is dropping off that conveyor belt. So that's one of the reasons why it looks rosier earlier and it's still fine. Like I'm not actually that worried about it. Flowers is the bills than the Packers. Oh God. <laughs> Put it yeah. that way. Or we, we've got so one of the more guys in trouble. We've got one of the more favorable positions. We can still have a decent whack in free agency and have a good draft class and come out of it fine. Packers, if they want to pay Aaron Rodgers $50 million a year and Devontae 30, they've got to find like nearly $80, $90 million worth of savings by March 16th. Yeah. So, I, I was just listening to a Tailgate them. podcast and they were saying that they're going to have to cut Zedarius and Preston Smith. Like the, the Smith yeah, brothers they're two, are. They're two gone. big edge rushers. Yeah. They've got Rashawn Gary, but those are two massive, you know, parts of their thing. And it's like the Saints are going to have to cut again. They're 70 million over. They lost Trey Hendrickson last year because of this. And look at him, he's just gone to a Super Bowl. He transformed the Bengals. That's the sort of talent that happened to Jetson. At least us in our situation, you know, this is a much better year than last year. You know, we've, we can at least maybe get some two, three-year guys in now because we can afford to spread the money out. We don't have to take loads of one-year flyers and hope that we land on something. And we're in a fairly favorable position. We can do a couple of restructures if we want as well, but Flowers has got to go by June the 1st. He absolutely has to. If anything, it's a sign of that his effort levels won't be tolerated in Detroit anymore. He's sending out a message. I'm not going to buy that. Trey Flowers was nominated by the Lions players to be their man of the year. You do not give that to someone with low effort. Now, I know that that award is mainly focused on charitable work and stuff like that. Regardless, if you have the most charitable, lazy person on there, which I don't think is something which really crosses over, generally speaking, someone who's high effort is going to be one of the guys that's actually trying to generate as much as possible for charity there. But he was elected by the Lions players to be the Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee. So I think that says a lot about Trey Flowers. And... I know that I'm probably the biggest Trey Flowers stand we have on the pod. I know that people take the piss out of me for saying highlight reel when I really didn't mean that. And it's been a meme for the last, like, fucking, I don't know, five, six months now. Um, I've said anything for at least two weeks. I know, I know. But I think when you listen to 
anyone talk about Trey Flowers in the media world, they have nothing but good things to say about him in terms of effort levels, in terms of commitment, in terms of being a leader in that locker room. Like, I, I okay, fundamentally then pro- providing disagree. value for money. That I completely agree with. Definitely. Get in. Sorry. <clears throat> pro- pro- providing value for money, then. For that reason, he has to go. But, you know, I still don't think the leadership has been there. Just my opinion, on the field at least. He's not led by example, especially for the money you're spending. You want, for that sort of money, you need a franchise-changing interest, and he's never, ever been that, ever. No, he hasn't lived up to his hype, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm not going to argue that. I will say that the Lions have never been good enough to make the best use of him. He is someone who is going to provide elite production against the run and good production against the pass. I'm not going to say great, because it never has been and never will be. But he is an excellent run defender, and that doesn't show up on the stat sheet. But when you're playing a 3-4, ideally Flowers would be one of your Ds, not outside linebackers. And we were playing him at outside linebacker to start with, and that doesn't suit his skill set. And before that, he was playing a D in a 4-3, and that was better for him. But in a really good team, Flowers is going to be a really fundamental piece. But in a average team... He's going to look way out there. Like, we just don't suit him, and we never have. And it shows. I don't, yeah, but I don't think that's an excuse. You know, you have a guy like Charles Harris who's come in and played for nothing, and he's excelled this year. He didn't start off well against the run. He adapted. He got better. He's passed rushed well. This is from a guy who's here on nothing, let alone $20 million a year. You know, I said the same with the corners. Right now, the bar of standard for me has been elevated. These guys who've come in as undrafted free agents on cheap-ass deals have come in here and shown that you can get exponentially better in a season if you push yourself hard enough. And they've raised the bar for everybody. Drafted players, highest-paid players, every single person who comes there. There's a new standard in Detroit. And Flowers fell well short of that. As to do a few others, to be fair, we're going to have some senior corners who are going to be sweating when they're back next year because these undrafted free agents have come in and showed them up. They've shown you what you should actually be as a player. Yeah, absolutely. They are what long shots are all about. So, you know what? Everyone on that roster shouldn't feel like their spot is guaranteed. And I, I love that message. It should mean that everyone gives 100%. Let's move on. I just want to apologize for my outburst. Liverpool, my, my soccer team, currently playing in the Champions League. We scored a goal. I couldn't hold back. I will do better. Um. Lions defensive assistant Dom Capers has been hired reportedly by the Denver Broncos to effectively do the exact same job there. So obviously the Broncos have got a new um, coach. They have got a new coach. I'm sure they have. I can't remember who it is. It's um, Nathaniel Hackett from Green Bay. There we go. Of course it is because they might get Rogers. That's it. Um, So Capers is there to assist Hackett be a head coach to kind of ease him in to kind of assist the defensive system there, which is already fantastic. I mean, Denver's defense has always been really, really good the last you know decade or so. So he's going to assist that process. He came in here to assist Aaron Glenn in his first stint as a defensive coordinator, and he effectively created the 3-4 scheme that we run in Green Bay some 20, 25 years ago. So the guy is experienced. You've heard him speak in his little press conferences. He's a softly spoken guy, but you can tell 
the wealth of talent, experience, the way he communicates with people, he is someone that was underrated in our room last year. And I think now Aaron Glenn has kind of been mentored enough to the point where he can allow he allowed to go by himself. But I can't help but feel it is our loss in Denver's game there. Not by a huge amount, but someone that if he'd stayed another year, I wouldn't have hated that at all. Well, no, I think it's win-win for us all. I think he was one of the shrewdest signings we made last year because we bought in a lot of inexperience. But what I said last year, we bought in the right amount of inexperience, but you know, potential talent and the right amount of experience and recognised talent. Capers was the guy, as I say, was bought in to help Glenn and he's done his job. The defence at the start of the year did look a little rough in some areas, but you could see as the season went on, they started fighting harder. They started scheming better. The technique got better. And you can see Don Capers has had an influence on that. He's given Glenn the confidence to go out there and run his defence how he wants to. And I think that's exactly what we required of him. And the fact that Glenn's now getting head coach look-ins less than a year later shows to the job that he's doing there and the job that Capers has done helping him. That's why we bought him here. We yeah. bought, I mean, I still say that Lynn, for his part, will have been an, exper- an experienced guy to help Ben Johnson and guys like that, etc. The experience will have filtered through. Sadly, it didn't work from the coordinator position, but you know we've done it at every level. We've brought in someone senior just to help out, and right now, we've been able to let him leave. We don't have to pay him that wage. It's one less job on the staff, and Glenn can fly. I think, I think it's ran its course, and it's worked well for Capers, and it's worked well for us. I think we all win, and I think Denver have got a real good guy in him because their DC is a first-time DC as well. He's going to do the exact same job there. So shrewd signing by the Lions last year. He's done his job, and he's got a reward elsewhere. And it's like I say, it's one more position we don't need to pay now because we don't need him. We don't need to. Big breaking news from Ashley Soden in the Twitch chat. Jim Harbour has had his contract extended at Michigan until 2026. I know he had his contract extended last season. And there it is. And there it is. He's bent them over a barrel with this projected move to to Minnesota and he's got his money. This is what it was all about. He took a cheap he took a cheap deal to stay there with them. Everyone suggested that this was a publicity stunt to get his stock up, to get them to pony up and keep him long term with his money. And by God, has he played the system well? Yeah. I'm guessing I will see what the contract is, but he got his money. He knew damn well what he was doing. He wasn't getting the Minnesota job, but putting interest in the NFL again makes Michigan worry. They've had the best season in ages. They're primed to really go on a run and go for a natty. Keep your coach at all costs. And he'll have taken one look at the deal that Tucker's been given by Michigan State and been like, right, I want that money. Yeah. Because oh, Mel Tucker's just got a massive deal from Michigan State for much less. And he's not going to sit by and watch his counterpart get that much money while he sits on what he does. I mean, it's just funny, though, isn't it? Like, last year, this time last season, his contract was extended, but in such a way that effectively said, this year's a prove-it year, and if you do rubbish, you're out. If you do what you've done the last few seasons, we don't want you anymore, because Michigan, Michigan, apart from this season just gone, have not met expectations at all for the winningest 
team in college football history. They have underwhelmed massively. And you only have to look at the alum that they have um, in the NFL media. The way they talk about them all the time. Like, I know that Alabama are the darlings now and what have you. But every Tom, Dick and Harry of the NFL media went to Michigan. Like, it's absolutely mad. And you have a look at what Harbaugh's achieved up till this season. And it's been poor in this second stint. And then this season... It's they has an together. easy sh- they have an easy schedule. They won games they should win. They didn't win them as comfortably as potentially they should. Then they beat Ohio State convincingly at a game I was at, which was pretty hyped up. I have to say, amazing game. Um, probably the best win of of Harbaugh's second stint of Michigan. And because of that one win, they're going to give him this mega deal. And it's like, I'm sorry, but the schedule was so friendly to him, and they didn't beat him as well as they should. The the the, the rest of the teams as well as they should. There's no when way they, he deserves this. Well, when they lost to Michigan State in Week Seven, I think it was mm. like, that was it. They were done with him, even though they were they'd only lost one game at that point. I think it was they were done with him for losing that game. I remember it because I've been doing the college podcast. I've been seeing the reactions. They were furious and. They've lost twice in a row to the Spartans. And they were about done with him. And now, mm. as you say, six months later, he's got this big deal. But it was predicted that's what he was doing. He was yeah. garnering it's interest. Because, because he's beaten Ohio State now. That was his curse. He couldn't beat Ohio State. There's just a one thing he could not do at the collegiate level was beat Ohio State and uh, assert that dominance over the Big Ten. He's done it now. It's his first time doing it. He's, he's, he's under pressure now. Because they have got a dead easy schedule next year. They've got eight or nine home games out of 13. And they've only got a couple of road games. So, you know, if they're not winning 10, 11, 12 games next year as a minimum, he could still find himself in trouble again. A lot of expectation on him now. Yeah, absolutely. And they've lost a lot of people to the draft. So you can't expect them to run it back as much. And to be frank, their quarterbacks ain't shit. Like, Well, they all want the backup JJ in. Yeah, they're, they're, I, they're ready to eject Cade. Yeah, the thing is, when it comes to it, last season, having watched both, JJ has the upside like Trey Lance has the upside. But when it came to actually delivering under pressure and putting that West Coast offense passing game together, Cade ran it better. And you know what? They look like San Francisco now. Like they just do in the way they operate that offense. So... It's kind of funny that Harbaugh, having come from San Francisco, lands in Michigan and runs an offense that San Francisco are running right now. Um, but you can see it in their running backs, too, the way they have such success on the ground. It's like, I worry about what happens to Michigan if their run game falters. Both, both teams are in. Both expectation in Michigan now is huge. Obviously, Mel Tucker has beaten the Wolverines twice in a row. They messed up against Ohio State this year, but the expectation is for them to win double-digit games now. It's the same with the Wolverines, and they've both got big, long, shiny new deals. They're going to have to justify them very quickly. And Spartans lost Kenneth Walker this year, who is going to be impossible to replace. So that's interesting, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah, we thought we didn't know if they'd do much this year, but both really played well. So you know, I hope they do well. Yeah, good Michigan team gets good Michigan prospects. You know, 
the Wolverines propaganda is taking over already. It's infected pods and everybody else and that. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's move on because this isn't the college football podcast yet. No. Yeah, we've got a few more things to cover before the main pod becomes effectively the NFL Draft podcast. But let's move on. And the former Lions head coach, Rod Marinero, is reportedly retiring. He's gone back to Texas, um, one of the worst by record Lions head coaches in, in their history, but someone kind of somewhat beloved by the fans still somehow. Like, I, there's, there's a sort of, love-hate relationship with Rod. Not Combs syndrome. Yeah, exactly. But someone loved, generally speaking, just like people like him as a person. And I think he's like a Coldwell, isn't he? Yeah. Universally liked, but didn't have the success Coldwell did. Yeah. But people still like a good guy. And you can't put that away. But I mean, you know, for me, that that is in the past now. I was on Luke's podcast the other day and I had my rant on there and I'm like right I'm done with the past now <laughs> all this stuff that's happened all the Jim Bob Cooters all the Rob Marinelli's all that like they're in the past now I want to look at my bright shiny new future with lots of good coordinators and a good head coach and a good GM and developing I mean, players I, I just all these names I want to just like nope off you go you don't yeah, exist but, for but a little before bit before we leave the specific subject because I know that you want to move on to brighter and better things but we can't because we will have one more thing to talk about, which is that former offensive coordinator Jim Bob Cooter has been hired as the Jacksonville Jaguars pass game coordinator. Now, I liked Jim Bob in that, at least for the first year of his tenure as offensive coordinator, Stafford got immensely better. But he got found out the next two years that he was in the role, eventually getting fired. And I think he was just someone that I just remember my girlfriend going... Uh, you have someone called Jim Bob, um, <laughs> which that, that's my lasting memory of him. But I someone won- who was limited. As I always wonder how players. much control he had over his offense. I always wonder what the control was there and whether other people were pulling the strings. There were a lot really? of puppets. There were a lot of puppets around in that time when it came to coordinate position. Like you say, he got it right one year, but. After that, I mean, Jesus, we were dire. And you've seen what Stafford's done this year. When you've got him, and when we had the receiving class that we did, fair enough, we may not have had the O-line. But when you've got the receivers and the quarterback you have, you've got to be doing better than we did. Yeah. I mean, we, we kill for some of those receivers now, to be fair. I mean, mix those receivers back then with this team now. I mean, bloody hell. We got a great offense. Oh, yeah. It would be... Mwah. But... You know, Jim Bob, I mean, I just don't know what Trevor Lawrence has done to deserve all this. That is the perils of being a number one pick in a draft. Indeed. You sometimes land at a really bad franchise. And uh, at least they might get him a tackle to protect him this year, though. Just want to apologize to the guys in the YouTube and Twitch chats. Um, you are all about five minutes behind us now because of the dropping frame rate. So apologies for that. If we answer you in the chat, just know it's coming about five minutes later than when you ask the question. So. Apologies, um, and hopefully that sorts itself out shortly. Although, when you're that far back, you can't exactly catch up. So there we go. A um, little bit of roster uh, news. Just, just before, just before mm. we do, I see my man Lions rumble in the YouTube chat, arguing for Kyle Hamilton, and just want to say, rock on, dude. You keep fighting the fight. That is the way we need to go. Don't let all these uh, Michigan Michigan fans just try and use their hypnotism on you to say, to say Aiden Hutchinson. 
Hamilton's the guy. He's the blue chip prospect. You want to pick a 90 out of, or a 90 or a 95 out of a 100 guy when you're picking number two, and he's the one guy in this draft who is. So keep fighting the fight. Yeah, and I'm with you guys. I think that the majority of us on the pods are on this train right now. At the end of the day, we want someone... It's not It's not even about Hamilton. It's not about Hamilton. It's about it's strength. It's about value. It's about str- No, it's not even about value, because when you say value, and I heard you say this on the college podcast, and I think people get the wrong idea. So I want to qualify what I think you mean by value, and you can tell me if I'm right. I'm talking about the overall value you get. Oh, sorry, go on. No, 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 you, you go. I'm, I'm talking about the value you get between your two players. So, like I say, Kyle Hamilton's like a 95 out of 100 prospect. That's what you want when you go in there. Whereas with the edge classes, even at the, even at the end of the first round, the start of the second, you've got guys up there who are like 80s, 85s. These are really good guys there. You're not finding that level of safety back there. And I think that you don't need to take the edge at two because you've got the class at the end who are still just as good. So I'm walking away with my blue chip safety and a bloody good edge rusher at the end rather than a bloody good edge rusher and an all right safety. Okay, that's my terms of value. Here's how I want to frame it because I think it will bring it more into focus. And I'm not going to assume what you do in this position. All I'm going to say is I think your decision would be much harder in this scenario. Let's say, as part of the trade for Stafford, we had to give our... We didn't get... I, I, I don't know, whatever. No, don't, don't. Never mind about Stafford pick. In this draft, let's say we have the second overall pick, and we do not have any further picks in the top 70. In that scenario, I put it to you that your decision between Hamilton and one of the two top pass rushers would be closer than it is now. The idea of... It's the two picks in tandem together and the strength and depth of the safe oh sorry of the edge class, which makes this a much easier choice. Because at the end of the day, if you take Hamilton and the fifth or sixth best edge rusher at 32, that is better as a result than getting the top edge player or second top edge player and safety two at 32. Those two picks in tandem. Oh yeah, define the always, result because of the strength. That's how I've always depth. framed it. That's yes. how I've always framed it. Yeah, you know, but you I, th- can I think people to go will... for the blue chip guy mm, because you don't need to go for the guys up there because you've still got cr- tremendous value. Yeah, with your second so, pick. When it comes to the word value, I fear that people will say no, but high up in the draft, edge is more valuable than safety. And my answer is, you're right. In isolation, what you have said is totally legitimate it makes sense that is the conventional logic and it's probably true edge is more valuable than safety it just is it affects more plays even though they have less plays what they do on the field probably matters more but you take that second pick into account the weakness in the safety class the strength and depth in the edge class you took two picks in tandem the value you get is greater from safety at two. Yeah. That is the key. It's not about value at pick two. It's about value at two and 32. That's how I've always framed it as your overall yeah. value. You walk away with better from the two picks than you do the other way around by going the certain position first. So Ash is just saying this is 
Jim's first stint as Michigan head coach. I swear he was head coach before, but maybe I, I didn't really follow college before I started doing this. So I don't no, know. No, he was at, he was at Stanford. He was at Stanford before. Uh, Stanford. Uh, before that as well as a college coach. Apparently yeah. that's where he cut his teeth. Um, anyway, let's move on from that because I could talk about Hamilton all day. In fact, no, one thing I want to say, ha- not having done a huge amount of tape work so far, people are saying there's not many blue chip players in this po- in this um, draft class. I think there's one. I think it's only Hamilton. I think he's the only blue chip guy. I do not think that Hutchinson and, and Kayvon are big enough prospects to be labelled blue chip guys. I think no. that Hutchinson is more of a blue chip guy than Kayvon, just, but I don't think they actually meet the threshold. No, and, you know, the big thing here is the arguments. You've got to look at the arguments against the player. The only argument you will find against taking Hamilton at two is his position. No one can find anything on his tape which says otherwise. There's no problem with his athleticism, the way he reads the game. You know, every aspect of his game is at an elite level for the prospect he is. It's gotten to the point now where people are spreading the fake rumor he's had an ACL tear to try and put you off. He's not had an ACL tear. He has had a little injury of his knee, which meant he missed the last four games of the year in a pointless bowl game. But he's not injury prone in the slightest. He's not torn an ACL. And that's the lengths people are going to to try and discredit him from that position. And when they're doing that and they can't find a legitimate problem with this game, that's the issue I have. Because Kayvon and Aiden don't get that same treatment. They're edge rushers. They can do what they like. They can go too because it's positional value. And that's just simply not true. That's simply not how I see it. This is the one guy who has elite everything you need at a prospect position and the value you want at two. I mean, the thing is about Hamilton, from what little I've seen of him, I think he could play on the edge. He could like, do all sorts. You can deploy him in a whole variety of manners. You can deploy him up at the line of scrimmage and get him in the backfield. You can leave a half of a pitch to him. That's the versatility he adds to you. It's his speed and the way he reads the game. He locks down the field, and we've not had a safety who does that for years. We keep saying Glover Quinn, since he left, the safety room has been depleted and Tracy's been good, but he needs help back there. And it's been consistently a huge weakness of ours. That secondary has had a bullseye on it and it gets aimed at every single damn game. And yet when it comes to having a blue chip prospect back there, they're like, oh, it's not a value thing. And it's like, it bloody well is. Yeah. I'm sorry, but yeah. it bloody well is. Because people only look at the pick in isolation. That's their problem. Yeah. You have and to, you've look, got at to look at the class as, yeah. as a whole. And that, exactly. that is where you make your money. And you can be sure that Holmes is going to take all of that into consideration because when they do their draft process, and you heard about it in this current process that happened at the end of last season, they don't look at one pick in isolation. They do simulations of the whole thing, much like we do mock drafts. They will go, okay, we're going to draft for every team out there. What are their needs? Where are they going to go? If they take this guy, what are we going to do? If they take this guy and this guy and this guy, what are we going to do? And they will map out as many eventualities that are realistic as they can. And what that will end up with is an entire draft class multiple times. They will brute force the Lions draft as much as possible. And then they won't have a set way of doing it. They won't say, well, we can only take Hamilton at two. I don't believe that's the way they're going to approach this. If... If the Jags take Evan Neal at one, it's going to change the approach from if they take Kayvon Thibodeau at one. 
Like, what the Jags do will matter to what the Lions do it too, and how they approach things. It just will. Well, if you if you want to talk about value, you know, people say you only trade up for quarterback, but people will trade up for a franchise tackle. And if Neil is gone and you're left with a Quonu, maybe Cross, someone might try and jump the Texans through. Texans need a tackle. Yeah. So you raise your odds of being able to trade if Evan Neal goes first, because I'll go back to the positional value thing. Left tackle is as premium as you can get outside of a quarterback. Yeah. It helps us to shift it. At this point, I'm on the Aquanu train being ahead of Neal, to be honest. I I am. Well, if one of them goes first, then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same place. Um, Right. Let's get off this train and just hit the last bit of news before we talk about the Super Bowl. Um, Aubrey Pleasant, uh, shortly after we got off the air last time, interviews for the Saints defensive coordinator job, but he didn't get it. Oh, sorry, he didn't get the Vikings job. He hired Ed Don Donatel. Saints DC job, as far as I'm aware, is still up for grabs. So he's still in the mix. He's not thought to be the leading candidate. So hopefully, hopefully, hopefully he is staying. We've already talked about Aubrey, so. I will move on from that straight away. And let's move on and talk about the Super Bowl. Unless you want to hear anything quickly, Anne? I'm just want to say I'm glad it's not the Vikings Pleasant's gone to. If he's going to go anywhere, it's out of division. I don't want him training up the secondary there because we've seen how good he is. I just wanted to highlight something, actually. So having listened to the PFF Tailgate podcast, they revealed to us in their NFC North little pod that they did yesterday that the Lions are bottom of the betting for the NFC conference chances of winning this coming season, which I think is fucking insane. Like, if you have a look at how the Lions did down the stretch against teams that were in must-win situations, I cannot see how you think that we are going to be worse than some of the shite that the NFC is going to be rolling out. Because one thing they did highlight, and I completely agree with, is the NFC is trash. Like, the the team with the most likely chance of winning the NFC is the Rams. And it's not just because they went into the Super Bowl. It's because everyone else is bloody rubbish. Tampa are in free fall after Brady going. That's the end of what they're doing there. And they're not going to be able to run anything back. San Francisco are second in the betting. I know they got to the conference championship. But... They're going to be ditching the quarterback that got them there, going to be taking on Trey Lance, who, to be honest, is not ready for that responsibility. They've got cap issues. They're going to be losing guys. It's not going to happen. Seattle were obviously rubbish. Arizona have got their own problems right now in terms of what's going on behind the scenes. But at the end of the day, they might be the team most likely to get there, in my opinion, because they might be the most stable as long as they can work out what's ever happening with Kyler Murray at the moment. You have a look at what's happening across the rest of the division, the team that might benefit the most from the mediocrity is Philadelphia. Because they're not getting worse. They're just not getting better, but that might be enough. In this universe... Three picks between 10 and 20. In this universe, the Lions can win the NFC North. If if Rodgers moves on from the Packers, the Packers are in free fall. Chicago is awful. Minnesota are expected to move on from Kirk Cousins. Like, it's not just something that's speculated. They are expected to move on from Kirk Cousins. That leaves no established quarterbacks apart from Jared Goff. Now, the Tailgate podcast said that 
the one off-season move that the Lions should do, and I want to pick this up perhaps on our next show briefly, is the one move the Lions should do is get rid of Jared Goff. Cut him outright this off-season. And I get the rationale. I almost buy into the rationale. But in this universe where we can win the NFC North for the first time, it's madness. Their rationale is this. Jared Goff is not good enough to win the Super Bowl. It's the conclusion that the Rams came to, which is why they traded him. And if you want to win the division, Goff is fine. If you want to win the Super Bowl, it's not fine. And at the end of the day, you'd rather find out whether you have something in the future by cutting Goff, drafting quarterback, and giving them a chance, and seeing if they can be the future, rather than having Goff there, spend the money on him regardless, but then you have to spend money cutting him next season, whereas you don't if you cut him now. I get that. I totally get that rationale. Like, it makes sense. You're building for the future. You're committing to the rebuild. And it probably does make your Super Bowl chances greater in the future. I do think that's true. But damn it, I want to win a division. Like, I want to win a Super Bowl. But we've seen from a team like San Francisco, it doesn't take a good quarterback to get deep. We've seen from, yeah, you know, other teams in this. Philadelphia got to the playoffs. Joey Burrow has now become the well. They say he's the sixteenth um, quarterback to lose in. Well, no, before him, there's been fifteen quarterbacks who've got to a Super Bowl for the first time, all losers, and they've never been back. You look at that list, and it's fucking horrendous. Some of the names on there. Yeah. I mean, none of them are bona fide starters, really, apart from Matt Ryan. And so you can make it to a quarterback uh, to a Super Bowl with a subpar quarterback. I'm not saying we can. But the only reason the Bears are ranked above us in anything is because of Justin Fields. That's it. One player who might be good. They have no offensive line to protect him. They've got precious little good on there. They're losing their star receiver despite... Well, he was absolutely atrocious this year. But they're still going to lose their star receiver for nothing unless they tag him again. And he's not going to sign a tag. So they're going to have to reset there. They're just reloading. They're going to have to waste a big draft pick on just replacing him. They're not going to get much better. And that defense just carries on getting older. Yeah, which has carried them for so long. The only reason people rank them above us is fields, and it's wrong. We've got the better trenches, possibly yeah. on the defensive side, certainly on the offensive side. We're getting there on the defensive well, side. And, and also on the defensive side. On the defensive side, the Tailgate podcast said that the one move that the Bears have to make this season, in the offseason, is to either trade Robert Quinn or Khalil Mack. That's the one thing they must do for setting themselves up for success. Because between the two of them, they're taking up a quarter of their cap. Khalil Mack is hitting them is hitting the cap for thirty million dollars next season. Hmm. That blew exactly. my mind. Exactly. So you've got issues there. You don't have the most amount of cap to fix it. It's just fields, and he has been inconsistent so far. And obviously, he was really good against us, but you've got to protect him, and that requires draft picks something that they don't have much of. I think out of they've got the third worst situation in terms of draft picks this year. They've not got many and not at great positions. And then the Vikings, who knows what goes on there. If if the fraudulent one leaves at quarterback there, then they've got Kellen Mond and he got publicly dressed down by the last head coach has not been good enough. Now, whether he approves over another one guy there or they bring another guy in remains to be seen, but they've got to cut Daniil Hunter 
I think he's worth about 19 million to their cap. They've got cap issues, so they might likely have to cut him, yeah. which is big for them. They lose Cousins. And as much as I hate him, he is serviceable. He does know that offense. You know, I'm not saying he's, that he's always going to be the 11th best quarterback in the NFL, and he's never going to be better, and he's never going to be worse. I've always said that we have, if everything goes right this offseason for us, if we are smart in free agency with the money we have and we draft well, and the players continue to develop at the rate they are, there is no reason we can't get second this year. There is no reason we can't surpass the Vikings and the Bears. You know, the Vikings couldn't beat us last year when we were when we not won a game all season and they were going for the playoffs. We still beat them. The Bears have just been a pain in the arse for a while now, but tactically we got the games wrong and I think we'll be better against them next time. You know, there's no reason we should be written off as fourth, especially the way we fought this year. It's just people going against Detroit. I don't mind going under the radar. No, I know no, that I've got either. a real good quality squad of young players here getting better, not older players on the decline, as is the case in Chicago. Yeah, And we're going to get a whole new batch of people in this summer to keep on building, whereas they are not going to be able to do that. Just to address um, a point from Joey two times in the YouTube chat, he just said that a rookie edge contract and a vet safety contract is much, much better than a rookie safety contract and a vet edge contract. You're absolutely right. That does save you a lot of money. So, but we are advocating for a rookie edge contract and a rookie safety contract and then a cheap vet edge contract in Charles Harris compared to some of the more elite, expensive talents out there. The other question from Dead Fanman. Sorry, you go ahead. I was just, all I would respond to that is that may be true, but what if the rookie edge you're offering a contract to? is a 6 out of 10 player, and the rookie safety you're offering a contract to is a 9 out of 10 player. Yeah, you, you might be saving a few bucks, but you're getting a player who's nowhere near as good. Yeah. So it's not just a monetary value you have to take into it, as we've already discussed. It's schematic. It's what you need for your t- team. And this team needs a leader in its secondary, a good, blue-chip, young prospect who is going to prosper there, who is going to give you that shot in the arm that you need. Quarterbacks are not afraid to throw on us at the minute. You've got a bull hook like him in your secondary, shutting down these passing lanes and moving along the field like grease lightning. They start thinking twice about throwing on you. Gives the pass much more time to get home and it gives you more options in terms of bringing up your blitzers. Because that's one thing we can't do at the minute. We can't bring up the blitzers because there's no protection in the secondary. We need this elite guy there. It's not just an issue of money. It's an issue of position. It's an issue of what this team needs. And it's what Hamilton represents. You know, he's the best safety prospect to come out for a long time. And I see people saying the top seven best safeties drafted in the league. I think Minka Fitzpatrick's top at 13. This guy could be better than him. Yeah, I'm not saying he will be, but this is how good he is. is the potential to be better. You are waiting. You know, ceilings are there to be broken. Yeah, positional value. Sometime a player will come along, at you know a position we don't expect. A linebacker might go first one day because he's just that good. You don't pass them up just because of their position. Look at the player, how good they are, the potential they have to be. You know that's why I get so annoyed with this positional value thing. Some people would rather take a quarterback in this draft at two, like Malik Willis, because he's a quarterback but you're missing out on the best player in the draft because of a maybe guy who you're drafting 20 to 25 spots too high, all because they live and die by positional value. 
you know, just maybe because I'm English and I don't grow up with it the way that I see it differently, but I, you don't pass up on genuine talent. This Lions squad needs genuine talent. It does. It needs elite talent. It needs something that's above and beyond. We've got a lot of great players here, but you need those blue chip guys in there to really push you up. You don't pass up the only one in this draft just because of positional value. It's really interesting as a kind of thought experiment. So Depp Fan Man has come out with a really, really good question, which is not something we can answer right now in terms of the maths of this. So what is the expected value of Hamilton at two versus the expected value of a Marcus Williams signing? I think that the idea of that is really interesting. So if you take Hamilton at two, his first year against the cap is something like eight or nine million dollars, I think. Zach Wilson, Zach Wilson was seven million. Zach Wilson okay. was seven million this so, year. So it will probably be with inflation, certainly like seven point two million, maybe. Mm. Marcus Williams is at least double that, but there's no doubt in my mind that Marcus Williams in year one of Hamilton will be better. Like the guy has been in this system, he's worked with Glenn before. He is an exceptional player. There's no doubt in my mind that Williams would be better than Hamilton year one. That's not to say that Hamilton would be bad. I think Hamilton would be excellent in year one. He's in a position which actually translates really well to the NFL. So I don't think there's a huge amount of learning to do for him. But See, so in our situation, I'd look at it like this. Um, Marcus, Ham- um, Marcus Williams is a thoroughbred safety, a really good safety, who is designed for a team who is ready to win now. Yes, he's young. But we're still building. We're still maybe a year or two away from where we really want to be. So you could get two years of terrific production out of him. But by the time you get into that third year, you know, who knows what happens? Whereas Kyle Hamilton, by his third year, will, you know, potentially and hopefully be at an all pro status and just beginning his career. Mm. There's that. I mean, in a, in a lovely world, I'd love to take them both. I'd pay yeah. for Marcus Williams and I'd take Hamilton in the draft. And then, you know, you know, I win the off season with those two I mean, in the back, quite frankly. If, um, if, your, if your options were Walker for 8 million or Williams for 14 and you could only do one of them, which would you do? I think that's a really like, interesting as long question. As, <laughs> as long as we took Hamilton as well. Yeah, that's the idea. So Hamilton, Hamilton and one of Wells. God. Yeah, see, that's got you thinking okay, now. I like Williams. that. I know I'd be spending. I know. I know I'd be spending a ton of money on the safety position, but I'd have one of the best lockdown pair of safeties in the entire NFL. And already. then you, in Akuda, you have safety three and cornerback two, maybe. In yeah. in Melifon, where you'd have someone who could be CB one, two, or three. Jerry Jacobs could be two or three. You've got Amani who could be one or two. I mean, it is lacking cornerback one. This team is massively lacking a cornerback yeah. one. I think, I think for me now, where we are, we need to be adding blue chip prospects so that they age in sync with our timeline. But that okay, is, so that is that is where I'm at at the minute, and I so, think, yeah, what one of my things and though, I know, is I know that safety need... translates really well to the NFL. Safety is one of those positions I'd like to draft if you were in win now mode. Safety and wide receiver at the moment seem to kind of go year one, right, you can deliver. Whereas there's prospects like so tackle, 
um, is one of those that kind of takes a little while to translate. Tight end is as well, but that's a bit more of a luxury. I think there are positions that we have needs in, but there's not necessarily the people to draft, which is the problem, but that take longer to translate in the NFL. So, like, I feel like drafting Hamilton now is the best thing to do because I think the value is there. But I also kind of think, but we're not ready for him. Like like you just said, Williams is tailor-made for someone ready to win now. I kind of think the same about Hamilton, too. I don't know, but he's young enough. So you're going to get, you know, 10 years of great production out of this guy, potentially. You know, we're, we're going to be competing in 10 years. And, you know, I just... You need a safety regardless. You need oh, a young please, safety. God, let us compete in 10 years. <laughs> you, need, you need a young safety right now, because Tracy's coming up to a pro contract. So even if you bring him back, he's on a pro deal. So you need a young safety coming through the ranks. And if you get him this year and he has a good year, and let's say if the corners do well this year, you know, if Jacobs, if Akuda, if Orawari, if they all live up to their potential, this young group of corners, you've got a really good corner room. You've got Hamilton, you've got Walker in there. You've potentially got a fixed secondary by this time next year. And if you haven't and you're missing a guy, We've got extra picks in the first round. We could go after a corner next year in the draft. So you're fixing it up correctly, but the secondary needs fixing. It got ignored last year. I know if he got signed, but safety got ignored. And there's no linebacker this high to get this year. I think that when a blue chip comes round in a position of need, you take them. Yeah, Unless there's agree. a damn good reason not to. Right. And there's yeah. no reason to this year because the other position that you're considering taking it to, there's plenty of them. Yeah, plenty agree. of them down the draft. Agree. Um, Ash has just said the Jags got to the FC Championship with balls for so a rest my case. That's fair. Um, let's move on from the draft chat because there is another two and a half months for all of yeah. this. But there was a game this Sunday that we can talk about. The last game of the 2021 NFL season in February 2022, which was the Super Bowl in SoFi Stadium. So let's spend the second part of this podcast on that obviously the rams come out with the victory 23 to 20 and i kind of wanted to start by talking about the overall impression of the game i've seen multiple breakdowns from many media outlets about the fact that they thought the better team won in the end of it all the better team came through with this victory and without going into too much detail about why because we'll get into it I cannot disagree more with that statement. The thing that these guys were saying was that the Bengals were a missed face mask call away from being second best throughout in this game. It's like in a away from winning. I mean, so I get the point. I do get the point. But it's a point which is made in soccer so so much. Oh, this goal, which was given, it was offside. There was a foul in the build-up. Yeah, okay, fine. But it was given, and the game was affected by what happened. You can't take that moment in isolation and project it to the rest of the game. If the Bengals get called for offensive pass interference on that play, they play the rest of the game differently. It does not go the way that it went. The Bengals got no. conservative because they were ahead. They would have been a bit more offensive and threw a bit more caution to the wind if they were behind. So you cannot just say, oh, the Rams seem to dominate this game when they objectively didn't because the Bengals 
run defense was elite all day. Like the Rams could not move the ball. And you know what? The Rams were fir- were best in the first five minutes and the last six minutes. And then the Bengals dominated the game for 49 of the middle minutes. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, the NFL is defined by the first five and the last five. And it's, it's like the NBA in that way. You win the final quarter, you probably win the game. Unless you get blown out in between. As long as you can stay competitive, and if you've got one of the league's best players from behind in your locker, you've got a great chance to win. That was my overall impression of the game. I thought the Bengals dominated it. What about you? I thought it was a good game. I was invested in it all the way through. It was quite tactical. It was very close at most stages. So, you know, I, I did enjoy it. I thought there was an inevitability about the Rams winning when the Bengals couldn't start keep on scoring. At 2013, there were, I think they had three drives they stalled of the Rams and they had to punt every time. And when they didn't get any points in that, you kind of knew the writing was on the wall a little bit there. But I think it just came down to, you know, the first half, they schemed very well against the Rams. Everyone said that O-line was going to be a weakness, but you saw how they were using the tight ends, how they were double blocking with the center. You know, they were really clever about how they went about it and they protected Burrow really well, but, you know, LA adjusted and then they started just implementing their will on the game and Cincinnati showed their inexperience. Some of the play calls towards the end were questionable. Like say, the play calling went conservative. They... They had gotten back into the game by being aggressive. You don't stop being aggressive when that's what's winning you a game. You carry on putting your foot on the pedal because, you know, Chase had Ramsey on toast for a lot of this game. He was causing him so many issues. You know, you target that as much as you can. Don't care whether he's the best corner in the league. He's struggling. Keep going to it. And it just it, it just frustrated me because that was there for the Bengals to win. And with the AFC being as strong as it is, they may not get a better chance to get back there. But, you know, I agree with you. You know, the better team, I don't think necessarily won. They won in spite of themselves. I think, Matt, what pissed me off most about this was the fact that McVeigh has got a chip now because I think he's overrated as anything. He tried his best to throw the game away against Tampa Bay. He tried his best to throw this game away. He kept going with the run when they were getting nothing. I mean, that Bengals run defense is something we should aspire to. And, you know, weirdly enough, they said they built that defense. Seven of those 11 starters came in through free agency. They built their defense through free agency, none more so than Trey Hendrickson this year. They had the cap space. They spent wisely. You know, that's something we need to do this year, get an impact player like him if we can. Who knows? It might be a Marcus Williams, but sometimes you just need that marquee guy to push you over the edge. But, you know, the Bengals defense was terrific. I thought they were really good. I feel sorry for Eli Apple getting burned there, but... Do you? I don't feel sorry for Eli Apple, the prick. You know, it's just... It is what it is, and... You know, Stafford <laughs> bailed out McVeigh, and that's what annoyed me. I didn't like Stafford being intertwined one, but I only rooted against the Rams every week, so I hate McVeigh that much. And I wanted Jared Goff to realise that it wasn't his fault in LA, but now it is. So that knocks no, his confidence, no. which, but, you know, I just can't stand with him personally. No, I mean, the but, thing is, Goff doesn't have that X factor. He doesn't. Like, no, the thing is, but, like, Goff is a very, very good quarterback, actually. And you saw that in, down the stretch. But, but if they had have thrown yeah. a game away with his tactics, 
I think that sends a justification there to Goff that it wasn't him. Yeah, it was yeah, coach. absolutely. And like I say, he shouldn't have been there. Teams just weren't good enough to take advantage. The Bucks didn't do it. The Bengals didn't do it. And, you know, it was a shame. But, you know, at least Stafford got his chip. But, you know, the Bengals, you can't fault their season. They've done really well. They've drafted well. They've done free agency well. They've built the team correctly. And it's shown just how quick we can get there if we try. We have the foundations of our team. Yes, we don't have the franchise QB in at the minute. But we have a, well, and we have a good offensive line, which is one thing they don't have. But we're building the defense up bit by bit. We're getting the playmakers in there. We're getting the leaders in there. We're going to put a lot of guys in there this season. So it gives you hope that, you know, if you get it done well, you can make a deep run into the postseason. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the best team won. I just think that it was it was a slog. It was a battle. And, you know, I think mm. the best of, you know, the best of the worst one, if you get what I mean. Oh, yeah. End. Absolutely. There's a and bit of breaking lines news, by the way, that I want to bring to you at the end of our little chat about the Super Bowl, so don't let me forget it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I, I, it wasn't a clean, cut and dry thing. I think just people were people were riding the Rams all week. Oh, they're the better team. Yada, yada. I think Cincinnati got written off, and it was just a shame that they weren't able to prove all the doubt was wrong. Yeah. But I enjoyed the game. I was, I think, because I didn't want the Rams to win, I was really invested in it. So even when they weren't scoring, I was on tenterhooks, like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Yada, yada, mm. yada. And just, just one thing that the halftime show kicked absolute ass. Oh, we can talk about that. We can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but, um, let, let's, so let's go through the game as we always do in the same sort of way when we're looking at a Lions game by just going through in sort of moment by moment. And it started off by uh, Cincinnati in their first drive getting down to midfield. Third and two, run the ball, don't convert, get to fourth and one. They go for it early on fourth and one and don't convert. It felt like that was a really big moment early. I don't know about you, but I I feared the worst after that. It was a, it was a, a moment where you should clearly go for it, but they, they couldn't convert. And it was a kind of the start of a sequence where Cincinnati having been the best team in the football situationally pretty much the whole season, crumbled on third and fourth downs all game. I think, it, what, yeah, it wasn't the best decision in the world, but what I liked is how he didn't let it phase him. Mm. He carried on playing the way he did. He carried on playing aggressive. It, it could have been easy to go in his shell after after that first call and they got the touchdown and been like, right, I've got to be more conservative. But he didn't. He knew that what they were good at, he knew that they could convert. And, you know, I thought it was a brave decision to go for. It was just the wrong execution. But I like yeah. how they stayed aggressive afterwards. Otherwise, they'd have been blown away. But yeah. it's like Dan Campbell did this year. He didn't let the setbacks alter his method of what he was doing. You know, you've got to put your players in pressure situations if you expect them to perform. And he did that, just like Dan Campbell did, and he got the results of it. So, you know, I'm fair play to him for that, especially yeah. on such a big stage. It's easy to go, oh, my God, I don't want to be out the Super Bowl. Whereas yeah. he's like, fuck it, ride or die. And that makes the better spectacle. Absolutely. Um, so having just missed out, the Rams with the short field do end up converting. So finish off by a really, really nice... Stafford touch pass to OBJ in the right corner of the end zone for 7-0 to the Rams. And one of the 
things about Stafford, it was always said while he was here, was that he doesn't throw a particularly catchable ball. You know, he kind of rifles it in there like the gunslinger that he is. That pass highlighted to me why, although I kind of agree with that concept and principle, that Stafford has it in his locker to play that touch pass with precision. The spiral was excellent. OBJ had boxed out his man. He'd beaten him. It was only where OBJ could get it. And fantastic touchdown to go ahead early. The drive was systematic, and it just kind of led me to think early on, oh, man, here we go for the Bengals. This is not starting well. Yeah, you feared for them. I think the thing we said in the preview was they couldn't afford to get down like they did against the Chiefs because that's not you know, it's not the situation you want to be in against the Rams. You've got to keep it close. And when they're down early like that and you're thinking, uh-oh, well, you've got to pull this one back quickly. Mm. And thankfully, they did. You know, yeah. they settled down a bit. I think the nerves were there, but you know, they kept in range, which was which was the critical thing for them. So, you know, it was good to see that because it could have got out of hand really quickly if they'd have if they'd have gone fourteen down. I think it wouldn't have even been anywhere near as close. I think you'd have coasted most of the rest of the game. Ash has just very helpfully helped um, given us the stats for the second overall pick and Marcus Williams is expected contract value and said obviously it's five minutes eight because of the delay and it's like now we touch on that about 10-15 minutes ago now so the delay is pretty pretty bad and I can see that we're buffering quite a lot on YouTube so apologies if you guys are watching live that sucks but there's little I can do with the storm out there at the moment so just bear with us and hopefully it's um, discernible. Um, so 7-0 to the Rams after that touchdown. The next drive, I think, or maybe there's a couple of stallouts, but the next really big moment that happens is the insane Jermar Chase catch over Ramsey's head, right-hand corner, about 40, 45, 50 yards, intensely physical. I mean, it looks like it's kind of DPI, but both guys are being as physical with each other as possible. I mean, Chase almost shoves Ramsey out the way, but Ramsey's giving back just as much, so... It's not pass interference. I agree with the no call. And Chase comes down with it. And to be honest, if he doesn't go to ground, he walks in for the touchdown. But because of how physical the matchup was, he has to kind of go to the ground. That gives them about 45, 50 yards down at about the 10-yard line. But the Bengals, in a short field, can't convert. Their guys of Tyler Boyd, T. Higgins, Jamar Chase are built for action between the 20s but when it comes to the red zone chase obviously kind of showed up against kansas with the short fade in the left hand corner of the end zone to win that game but it didn't happen for the bengals in this game when it came to the red zone they they crumbled it a little bit and you know they ended up accepting the field goal here after not being able to convert on a third and ten to make it seven to three but it felt like in these really important moments that the rams came up big even though that chase kind of could have broken their spirit. I think it's that's where they really missed Uzomawa. Um, I know he was playing, but he only played limited snaps. Like yeah. you say, those red zone threats, he's the red zone guy you go to. And when you can't play him every snap and you're just playing those receivers in there, it makes it a little difficult. And they say the Rams are decent in coverage. And when you've got them squished down to their own you know, end zone, it's very hard to convert against them. But just for the chase one, that's an unbelievable catch. You know, Bengals and Lions fans really need to stop arguing on Twitter now about who won the draft. Both teams won this draft because both players ended up at exactly the right team 
Chase with his buddy from LSU at Cincinnati. Instant chemistry, instant output, excellent. Penai, because he's come to a smash mouth, knee-biting team exactly the way he plays. And they've both found their team. I don't think if you swap them around or anything, anything happens noticeably. You know, obviously, they're not getting to the Super Bowl if they don't have Chase. We're not doing as much if we've got no Penai Sewell this year. No. So, you know, I like how both players found their homes and we won out of it. And Jamar Chase was just amazing. You know, that catch was just, it's just like he just stuck a paw out. He's like, yep, there we go. I mean, there were a few in this game. There were one where he did a screen, I think, and he just whacked his hand out behind him and caught it and brought it in. It's just like, you shouldn't be able to catch that. And it didn't look like it even bothered trying to catch the damn thing. It was that easy. Yeah. Um, but it was a lovely throw. It was a wonderful catch. And they say it just gave him a bit of momentum. And at least they got points on the board. You know, the Rams never got points on the board against the Patriots. It just completely disrupts everything you're doing. At least when you get those points on the board, it gives you something to work with. You know that you can score on them. Yeah, you go do better in the red zone, but at least you got the points. You're not yeah. just going three and out in your own half. There's traction. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, so following that, um, and in fact, that drive almost ended in interception. So on third and 10, you had um, Burrow going over the middle of the field to T. Higgins. And it looked like Ramsey had it in his hands on the goal line, but it was kind of hit out by T. Higgins. So fortunate to get points on the board there in the end. Uh, in the next few drives, you had Cooper Cup in the back corner of the end zone. Really, really nice throw again by Stafford. Um, the PAT was no good after the punter Johnny Hecker dropped the snap and there was some sort of weird moment where the Bengals had the ball in hand trying to go for two for themselves. It didn't work out. That made the score 13-3. to three. The, next, the next Bengals possession was incredible. It finished with uh, a wide toss to Joe Mixon who had space in front of him but instead throws what was only his second pass in his life that we can discern in terms of college or professional career he had one throw in college and never threw again and his second career pass is a touchdown absolutely incredible to T Higgins that made it 13 to 10 and I mean that play just like so later on the Rams called the Philly special couldn't convert with cup to Stafford that reeks of someone who'd seen something before that they liked and tried to replicate it in the Super Bowl. This Bengals play said to me that their play callers and play designers have a bit of something to them because this is something that we hadn't seen yet in the Super Bowl before and it definitely did take the Rams by surprise. And Mixon's throw was fantastic. That was the funny part of it. You know, when he initially got it and you thought, oh, it's a run out wide. And when they showed the wide angle view you see six Rams defenders all just piling forward to absolutely leather him. And then you just see him throw this toss over and all of them have, all of them have bit on it, every single player. And you see these six guys helplessly looking as this ball sails over thinking, oh shit, there's someone back there. And they got suckered into it so bad. Like you say, you've never seen Mixon throw a pass, but all six of these guys, watch the aerial, they all move forward to leather him because they think he's running it. Obviously, if Mixon had held on to that, he'd probably be in hospital by now because they were all lining up hits on him. They just tossed it over, and it was beautiful. Absolutely and utterly just befuddled them. 
and you know you think that'd be some at McVeigh call the offensive genius you'd think he'd mm. pull some crazy stuff like that but you don't see Bengals really pull that sort of stuff but save it for the big occasion and obviously pull out something they're not going to expect because no one was expecting a Joe Mixon touchdown pass you know it's probably like one guy who's bet like a quid on a hundred thousand to one that it happens or something because he's lucky but oh it, it could have been me it could have been me <laughs> Remembering that I took the would Bengals you have on the money ever, line. Would you have ever placed that bet of Joe Mixon throwing a touchdown pass? Ever? I mean, so ever? Yeah, I would, but I didn't. I mean, the thing is, in the Super Bowl, that's where you dive deepest into your bag of tricks. And the guys who can throw touchdown passes well and your course back are what? Your punter, your kicker, your ex-wide receiver who comes in for kind of sweep and then passes or it's a running back like those are you guys who generically kind of do the trick play pass so i can i can see it but i I would never have done it it's like chucking money down the drain apart from it came in so hey congratulations to you good (laughs) sir who made that bet um we'll move on so 13 to 10 at this point to the rams Stafford there, so this is one of the big, big moments in the game. Stafford passed behind OBJ on a crossing route, and OBJ steps awkwardly. In the broadcast, they say that it wasn't to do with the pass. OBJ just stepped awkwardly, and his ACL goes. You can just see it go. The pain in his in the in his face, the way he clutches his knee, you can see instantly that he's gone. And that's him out for the rest of the game. ACL tear, question as to whether he's going to be back for the start of next season. His contract hopes in absolute tatters. He's probably not coming back to the Rams because of his two. And I remember that you and in our little chat kind of said, oh, no, that wasn't on the throw. But I don't... See, when he's moving, he doesn't have to make a visible... He just has to slow down. He doesn't have to make a visible movement back. I don't see where the movement is that, you know, when he's repositioning himself that does his ACL. And, you know, because initially I thought, oh, God, it is it is a throw behind him. But it's like he stopped. But you don't tear your ACL just by stopping like that. You get it caught in the ground or something if you, you know, I just didn't see where it was. I, for me, it wasn't, a, well, it wasn't the best throw, but I don't think the throw injured him. I would say that the throw contributed to, but was not the main reason for. That That's where I was with that. It's kind of like, if Stafford had thrown it directly in front of, of OBJ, he's not getting injured. But just because he threw it behind him doesn't mean he will get injured. And so that, that's where I'm at. But who cares? It made a massive impact on this game. OBJ was having a fantastic first half. I mean, he... Caught the first touchdown of the corner of the end zone, but he was popping up with catches left, right, and center. In the game, he well, say left, right, and center. He had two receptions on three targets for 52 yards and a touchdown. Like he was making big plays, and him coming out of this game left just Cooper Cup catching passes for the Rams until late on. And there's someone I want to highlight who actually maybe I think more so than Cooper Cup delivered the Rams this victory. But I'll get on to that. It left a massive hole in that offense that wasn't replaced until later on. Well, no, but the trouble is they're doubling cup all night. So when you double cup, more room for OBJ to work. And a guy of his skill level, 
you can't leave him one-on-one in man coverage so many times like that. And unfortunately, that is the byproduct of it. But when he's injured and you've only got Van Jefferson, who's really more of a speed guy downfield than Skoranek, you dropped a really bad one at one stage, I remember. You know, the quality's down. They they can't take advantage of the spare room as more as, as what OBJ can. And, you know, we're still getting possessions, even when it's getting double teamed up. But, I mean, they got bailed because they're like third string mm. tight end or whatever it was, putting nah, a few touch catches. You, you, you're um, stealing my thunder there. That was, that was who I was yeah. going to come on to, but I'll talk about him later. Um, they, they missed Higby big time. You they Because Higby, Higby makes those clutch third down catches they always seem to make. And I always said that could be the difference maker, him not being in that game. But thankfully, their backup managed to slightly replicate what he does without those couple of catches he makes game could be completely different absolutely absolutely so um that that swung the game i would say in favor of cincinnati um late on in the first half so at at the two minute warning basically um stafford in a kind of scramble drill motions to everyone to go to the end zone effectively throws a hail mary in desperation um no need to do so, but kind of looked like it was the right sort of moment to do it. Jesse Bates intercepts him in the end zone. Um, the only thing I think about that particular play was, one, I'm not really calling an interception on Stafford on that play because of the nature of the play. Interceptions are likely, but the payoff is a touchdown, which is also somewhat likely, especially with a rocket of an arm like he has. The thing that I do think about it is that if you don't do that and try and take a check down, you're killing clock for Joe Burrow, who in the two-minute drill has shown that he's particularly good at getting the ball out of his hands quickly. And the tactical misstep there is not that you went for it, but how early you went for that. And it's just leaving too much time on the clock for Burrow to go down and score. Now, Burrow didn't actually capitalise on that moment, but it just seemed like something in Stafford's head that he maybe shouldn't have done. Not that the decision itself was bad, but it was just too early for that. The throw was bad, though. You know, for a guy with his arm, it was severely underthrown. And I know I agree. Everyone says, oh, it was an arm punt. Yeah, it was an arm punt. But still, if you're going to make that throw, at least try and put it on the money. He was well short with it, and the catch was easy to come out with as a result. So, you know, no harm, no foul like. But throw could have been better, for even for an arm punt. But yeah, I agree. Tactically, it was poor. If the yeah. Bengals had gone down and got points then, then, you know, there could have been could have been an issue. Big issue. Yeah. But as it was, the Bengals flamed out, then Stafford couldn't actually he had time to go down the field and convert, but couldn't borrow. He had a really bad end to the I think yeah. he went one of six after OBJ went off. Yeah. It had a bit of a rough good. No. It, it was adjusting. He looked rough because, you know, the whole tempo of their flow had gone. They needed halftime, to be fair. That had been with six or seven minutes left in the second, the way the momentum was, they could have been in big trouble. Yeah, completely agree. It completely changed things. And yet, how the momentum swung with the first three or so plays of the second half. First play outside of the kickoff in the second half is a T. Higgins 75-yard touchdown. Now, what... Do you make of the face mask, or lack of face mask call? For me, when you see it in real time, it's such a minor tug for me. It's, I think Ramsey makes the most of it. And yet, it's definitely OPI. 
Like, I think it's soft, but you've got to call that. You can't miss it. You have got to call it, but I would just say defensive backs get away with a lot worse. I feel like the law's very favourable towards them in a lot of situations like that. Like I say, Ramsey gives as good as it got with Chase. He had hands all over him as well, but sometimes these little calls just go go against you and for you and you know it wasn't like this was a book of trend during the game like no one saw this face mate. it wasn't immediately identifiable you know everyone thought the play was good even when it when a play like that happens like when flowers was getting done for face masks people could tell on the play that they weren't face masks and you know on that play you couldn't you had to wait till you slowed it right down till you saw the little movement as you see yeah so you know it should be called but you know, it's a harder one because it's it's not easy to spot. No, no, it's and, not easy to spot. But at the end of the day, when Flowers has a face mark called on him, that ain't that isn't resulting in a touchdown as much as a receiver doing it to a DB. Yeah, but you know, I I feel like DBs get away with a lot of crap sometimes. Oh yeah, I completely agree. So but anyway, this is kind of karma balancing itself out. And like I say, it wasn't a book of the trend in the game, whereas when the Bengals got the decisions against them later, it was a book of a trend. Yeah, so it was. That was the, the, the officials weren't difference. calling anything throughout the game up until six no, minutes to go. Exactly. Really exactly. And that was good. I enjoyed that. Actually. It was a kind I of did. refreshing moment. Um, but anyway, so the, the Bengals score kicked the PAT 70 to 13 lead. The Rams then get in their next drive, and I can't remember if that's the first play or the second play. I think it's the first play. And Stafford is picked off, um, thrown over the middle to the tight end uh, backup for Tyler Hickby that you mentioned isn't suiting up for this game. Um, and I can never say his name. Um, Skronik, I think Skronik. it is. Skronik. He's a receiver. Is he a receiver? I thought it was a tight end. Skronik's, Skronik's a receiver. Beg your pardon. Um, so Skronik over the middle and kind of deflects the ball up in the air, picked off by Chudovia Wuzier, who runs it back. That's at the Rams' 31-yard line. And in two or three plays, however many it is, massive, massive um, momentum shift in this game. You go from the Rams up three at the half and seemingly fairly in control. The Bengals don't really seem like they're threatening a huge amount, whereas the Rams, at least in the past game, look like they're doing a little bit. And now suddenly, the Bengals have a ball near the red zone, four points up, with the Rams seemingly struggling a little bit on offense. And at that moment, I thought, oh, God, this could actually happen here. Yeah, I did as well. I mean, I was disappointed they didn't get the second touchdown and the field goal after such a... You know, a turnover in their half. The momentum's right on their side. I was disappointed they couldn't go and get the second touchdown, but you'd have given it at the half. First thing you need to do is score points, which they did first drive of the half, and then to convert more afterwards, that is fine. But I think when you only get the field goal with that second drive, you need to keep on scoring points to make sure that doesn't haunt you later on. Because now you look back at it and you go, they could have got another touchdown there. It could have been over. Just want to say hello to Chris Perfett as well as Derek Bobarek in the Twitch chat. Thanks very much for joining us, guys. Um, Chris playing Deep Rock Galactic while watching us here. So I 
it sounds awesome. Something about dwarves in space mining alien worlds and shooting giant bugs in a cult shooting. That sounds like fun. Anyway. Oh, um, I've got Elden Ring coming out soon. I'm not going to have a life when that comes out. That doesn't really do too. Um, yeah, so as mentioned, the Bengals don't convert the pick into a touchdown. So, in fact, on the ensuing drive, starting at the Rams 31, they have a fourth and one and decide to go for it again. The aggression this time paying off with Joe Burrow managing to pick up the first down with his legs. But then on third and three, deep into the red zone, eats a really big sack. And so Cincinnati have to take the field goal at that point. And they make it for 20 to 13. Um, Then the Rams manage to drive all the way down the field. They get into the red zone, try that Philly special on the third down that I mentioned before. That's third and I think it was five. And Stafford... It was thrown over his head by Cooper Cup. They then have to settle for a field goal to make it 20 to 16, about midway through the third. Sorry, midway um, early in the fourth. Sorry, that was begging your pardon. At this point, Cincinnati start feeling the weight of being ahead in a game late, which obviously they haven't done much in these playoffs. They've been somewhat comeback kings throughout this playoff run. Um, this is the moment after going for that fourth and one in the previous drive and then the subsequent drives, they start getting more conservative, running on first down, running on second down, only passing in third and long, sort of stuff we've been very used to in Detroit over the past few years. This is the moment where I think Zach Taylor just believed for a moment that with that run defense balling out for Cincinnati, not allowing the Rams anything, that he suddenly thought it's okay my defense have got this. And I think that's what lost them the game. Um, so they ended up, as I say, kind of converting a couple of times on third and long and then not being able to on the third instance. Give Stafford the ball back with six minutes and ten remaining. Stafford then engineers a amazing game-winning drive. Stafford and Cup combining for several receptions Holding by the defense gives a first down, which was really contentious. And then defensive pass interference in the end zone, which I don't think was contentious. I actually think that was DPI, but the holding should not have been given. And then there wouldn't have been DPI afterwards. Um, The drive ends with a goal line fade to Cooper Cup from a yard out. 24-20 to the Rams. In the final drive, Aaron Donald comes clutch, stops the run on third and two. And then on fourth and wrong, Sacks Burrow to win the game. They had about 90 seconds left in two timeouts, so plenty of time for someone of Burrow's calibre, especially with that receiving core. But the offensive line just had a dire day. And at the end of the day, Burrow didn't get the ball out quickly enough to win on that final play. And on fourth and one, I question putting the ball in Burrow's hands. I mean, I think it's something they should have been doing on first down much earlier putting it in his hands on fourth down with that pass rush and how much that offensive line was struggling i don't think was wise mixon i think would have been a far better call especially on third and two when they go a p right he can't make two yards that was malpractice for me but those last two drives stafford and cup and hopkins the tight end for the rams coming up big and then the bengals just can't get it done i've believed in the bengals in that final drive and they really let me down I think you've mentioned it, though, that the line started to crumble in the second half. It schemed very well against 
the elite edge rushers of the Rams in the first half. You know, they, they kept putting emphasis on how the centre was the free man. So he'd move out and help the guards, double team against Aaron Donald, etc. And it worked. It gave Burrow enough time in the pocket to get his throws out. But you saw what they did in the second half. They said, right, well, you're going to do that. We're going to hang a rusher back and we're going to put him in. And the amount of times they came through the centre, because there was no centre there, because he was doubling up, you know, it got them a lot of success and they just were not able to adapt to that. They just sort of went away from what worked with them. I mean, on the fourth and one, you know, you shouldn't be throwing it there. You get your jumbo package out and you run the damn thing. You know, you get behind as many tight ends, running backs, offensive linemen as you can, and you power the damn thing over. You know, it doesn't matter if you do a sneak, you've got a timeout in the bag, but, you know, they just did not adapt. The Los Angeles D-line changed up its plan of attack and it started getting home. And then on that last play, they were they were one-on-one in Aaron Donald. That's unforgivable. Yeah, don't match up one-on-one with him. When you've been double-teaming him effectively most of the game, to the point where he shoved Burrow out of bounds because he was so frustrated with the lack of action he was getting, to, to, to put him one-on-one on your most game-critical drive of the Super Bowl on the line is, like you say, gross negligence. But I think that's where it came down. Because the line crumbled, the offense wasn't able to move the ball as properly and they had to resort to defense-only mode. And they were never going to hold out against it. Never. I knew exactly... I knew, I knew that the Rams have won it well in advance. I said to you, there's no chance this game ends with Bengals winning. With plenty of time, because I just saw how it would going. Bengals could get nothing going. And it was a shame on their part, but... We always knew they were an offensive lineman or too short. They've just not got the guys on there to withstand the pass rush that the LA Rams have. So it was always going to be the mismatch. And just unfortunately, it showed in the end. Their motors, Von Miller's motor, Aaron Donald's motor, Floyd's motor, they'll go for 60 minutes. And any tiredness or ill-discipline, they will take advantage of. And they did. And yeah. That was that was the that was the balancing that was the tipping point. I think that's the thing that I remember most about Aaron Donald's career it wasn't just how many sacks he got or that he was the best player in football. I mean, um, PFF's podcast said that if he does retire, as is rumored, that he has an argument to be the best defensive player in history. Like, I I can't disagree with that. Like. He has had a rookie season that was very good, but not elite, and then eight seasons or seven or eight seasons of being the best player in the NFL. Like, absolutely incredible. But the most defining thing about him was that he always produced when you needed him to. He stepped up in the biggest moments. Like, sometimes... So in this game, he seemed to not be anonymous, because there were 26 pressures in this game by the LA Rams pass rush, but he wasn't as as big of a factor in this pass rush as, as Von Miller was. But when it came down to it, he was the guy that made the plays back-to-back with the game on the line. Like, that's what he always does. If you remember back to the oh. Detroit game, Donald was the guy that pressured Goff into making the pick in the game-winning play. Like, he always does this. And as much of a, as, of a bitch as Donald is, because he doesn't like someone standing up to him with the, the mentality of Penny Sewell, like, the guy's a winner. In his core, that's what he is. And without right, risking going back onto a previous subject, 
that's the kind of guy you draft at number two as an edge rusher in a draft. A game winner. A guy who is going to come in and make plays like that. That's the level you need to be assured that you're getting from a guy who's going to come in at that level. So you've got to ask yourself the question, will these two do that? Mm, maybe. Jury's out. Maybe. Jury's um, out. So, yeah, you know, I'm not, not wishing to move it back again, but it is. You know, you draft people at one and two or three in the draft that they are going to be a franchise changer for you. They're going to win you a Super Bowl. I mean, Donald wasn't even top two. He slipped. He was, what, 13th, as we always keep getting reminded about. But that's that's the guy there. And you've got to be damn sure you're getting as close to it as possible when you make the value. He's, he's a walking, talking definition of what you want there. And yeah. he came through for them clutch, big time. Big time. So and our GM drafted him. Yeah. Yeah. A um, couple of things from the game. My themes, and we've touched on all of these already, but I just wanted to go through them quickly. Both sides poor with offensive play calling. These teams are both defined by elite defenses. Cincinnati overall, but especially against the run, and the Rams in pass rush. The offenses were nothing to write home about. I um, thought, sorry, I thought the Rams should have been more aggressive. The Rams, the Bengals should have been more aggressive because every time they went aggressive with their throwing, they had success. I don't know why they didn't do it more. You know, Ramsey was getting cooked all the time, and you know, it, it just seemed every time they made a big throw, they made a big play. Is what I'm saying. Chase had yeah. some great grabs down the line, and I'm. Again, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit unsure as to why they didn't do that more. Maybe it's time in the pocket and that, but he had some good time in the pocket in the first half. Even in the third quarter, he was still getting some decent time in there. So I agree with you. The play calling was a bit suspect. You know, but McVay also by the Rams, too... it was suspect yeah, until yeah. the final six minutes. It was yeah. atrocious. McVeigh couldn't you know, reconcile with the fact that his run game wasn't working at all and was just putting him in bad situations on the field. And the Bengals weren't aggressive enough. So I agree. Both both play callers let them down that day. Yeah. Um, Rams coming up big in the big moments. They stopped the Bengals on fourth and one early. They also made some big stops on third down against the Bengals. They then closed out the game well. And when they needed to deliver on offense, they did. At the end of the day, although their offensive play calling was poor, when they had to score points, they did. And when they needed to stop the Bengals on defense, they did. When it came down to situational football, Rams beat the Bengals. And that's where the game was won eventually. Experience. Experience, Experience did it. Massive. Von, Miller, Von Miller's been there and been a Super Bowl MVP twice, I believe. Um, Donald, he's been to a Super Bowl before. He knows exactly what he needs to do there. It, it's just experience in those key positions. You know, I know Stafford's never been to a Super Bowl, but he's a highly experienced quarterback, which is what Burrow isn't. He saw a little bit of the inexperience on the show, but that didn't mean he had a bad game. He had a good game, but just in those sort of situations where you are looking at your decisions, because they're all showing the one where Chase is free on that play when he gets sacked and buffs it. Maybe if he sees it a bit earlier or trusts himself to get it out a bit earlier, he got a potential game-winning touchdown there. Yeah, I guess so the thing is... Just, like It was just experience on the line, and I, I get, you've got you've yeah. got you've got experienced guys everywhere. It's like on the O line, you've got Whitworth at left tackle, 
and everyone just loves him. But it's just experiencing those key positions that get you there. And I think I, that was the ultimate deciding factor. I think the thing is, I don't think he wanted to throw at Jalen Ramsey as much as possible. Now, if he's marked up on Jamar Chase, you have to make your choice. But I think on that play, he'd made his choice that he wasn't going to go after Chase because Ramsey was there. I think he'd already checked out of that unless he saw that he'd beaten him off the step, which he didn't. He eventually beat him quite quickly, but not quickly enough to the primary to make sense. At the end of the day, if you're being pressured like that, one of the things that Stafford used to do so well is say to your number one guy, hey, Megatron, I trust you to go and get this against whoever it is. And in the most desperate moment, Burrow didn't go, fuck it. And sometimes the best thing you can do that gives you the best chance is to go, ah, shit, I'm just going to throw in your direction. Please come down and get it. Like doing that early in that final play would have given them a better chance than what happened. Mm. You know, we, we can pontificate all we want, I guess, over it. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I just think experience. I think experience showed. Yeah, it you really saw the did. Bengals um, were just—they tightened up. They got nervous. They were defending a lead, and and they went away from the principles that got them there. They they didn't go into a shell when they went behind at the beginning. They went aggressive for the big prize, and you've got to stay aggressive for a full game. Mm. You see it with football teams over here. They sometimes they get ahead, and it's like, well, you're ahead, so stay a bit aggressive. But they don't. No. They clam up a little bit. They let another team back into it. They give them hope. Whereas you've just got to keep your foot crushed on their throat and say, hey, that's it. No yeah, more. We're not coming off. No three-man rushes and uh, and prevent defense in the Premier League. That's what we'll say. Um, <laughs> the, um, the man I wanted to mention, you've already actually referenced, but I just wanted to give him his due, is Bryson... Hopkins, number 88, the tight end from Purdue, fourth round pick in 2020, 136th overall pick. He did not have a catch in the regular season. He caught, oh, sorry, no, he had one catch, sorry, against Seattle in week 17 in the regular season for nine yards. He did not have a catch in the playoffs until, um, until the Super Bowl, where he went four for four. 47 yards. Every catch he made was clutch. Every catch he made was super important. He became the most important receiver in this game, apart from Cooper Cup for the Rams. And you could see Stafford beginning to trust that he could actually do this. Like, I watched him play and he kept popping it up, and I was like, this is doing it because they weren't able to move the ball until they went his way. And then he bought. Cup and Stafford enough time to get it done at the end. I mean, without Bryson Hopkins, the Rams do not win this game. No, they rely on the tight end to make the clutch catches, and he did. Yeah, that's exactly what Higby does, and thankfully they found someone to replace him for one night. Yeah. The other point I just want to mention is how much the Rams pass rush decimated the Cincinnati O-line. So I've already mentioned 26 pressures, seven sacks in this game. But the point is best highlighted by looking at the PFF grades for the offensive line of the Cincinnati Bengals. Here are your pass blocking grades. 
the bottom four are all non-center offensive line players in terms of PFF overall grades. But the blocking grades, right tackle Isaiah Prince, 61 snaps, block, pass blocking grade, 2.4. Quinton Spain, left guard, pass blocking grade, 20.3. Hakeem Adenogy, right guard, pass blocking grade, 26. Jonah Williams, left tackle, pass blocking grade, 41.4. The best offensive lineman is the centre, Trey Hopkins, 50.9. And your starting running back, helping out with the pass blocking, he had only six pass blocking snaps out of 44, but his grade was 24.6. In every moment, everywhere, the offensive line of the Bengals was trash. They gave Burrow no help, but never mind no help. They didn't give him any help throughout the playoffs, and Burrow managed to overcome it. But they were so much worse in this game than they have been previously that Burrow had I mean, the fact that they were in this game is a testament to how good Burrow played in this. Like, they well, should not have had a prayer. Well, what's the theme of the last two Super Bowls? Trashy O-lines lose their franchise, the big one. What did Patrick Mahomes get chased for 500 yards behind the line of scrimmage last year because Tampa Bay annihilated that front five in front of him? He ran for dear life. 500 yards running behind the line of scrimmage. And then this year... Burrow is sacked into oblivion. You know, that, that is the key message from these last two Super Bowls is the O-line have lost it for the losing team. If that line holds up even a little bit better for the Bengals, they win this comfortably. If the Chiefs line held up a little bit better last year against Tampa, they'd have had a damn good chance with Patrick Mahomes behind. But even when one of the best quarterbacks in the league can't get out done because he's getting chased for dear life, it just shows you an offensive line can win you a Super Bowl. Yeah, the last two are dead ass. You know, they, they they are such big evidence of that. Yeah, so true. Um, I mean, I, th- I think the playoffs overall shows is that a bad O line can be overcome, and it can be overcome in multiple games. But when it comes to winning the Super Bowl, a good O line will give you the foundation to be the favourites in multiple games and multiple runs to win the Super Bowls. To win a Super Bowl. You have to win at least three games on the stretch, assuming you're the number one seed. And assuming you're not one of the one out of seven lucky people to get that number one overall seed, you have to win four games in a row. Winning four games in a row with a bad O-line is at best unlikely. And yes, you can win three games. Winning three games in a row is perfectly doable, but winning four is really hard. I mean, winning two is really hard, but like the Bengals did enough to beat potentially the best offensive team in the league in the Kansas City Chiefs. But it does just it doesn't make it likely. Dare I say it? Defense wins championships. Oh, it, it, sorry, but it I did. Hate that the Rams won the Super Bowl because of their defense. Yeah. It's true. The Bucks won the Super Bowl because of their defense. They both came clutch when they needed it to on the show of shows against two very fiery offenses putting up good points all season but when it comes to the punch the defenses win yeah and it's the worst adage in football and i don't believe myself but the last two years have been proof of that yeah they have right any more thoughts about the super bowl before i move on to that breaking news from earlier no i just 
wish Stafford all the best and, you know, wave goodbye to them in the rearview mirror. It's part of our history now and it's time we look forward with our own team towards our own success in our yeah. own future. I'm, I'm so happy for him. He deserves it. It's perfectly okay to be happy for Stafford and be happy with where we are now. We made the best decision for us. He made the best decision for him. If he'd stayed here this season, we would have got less in compensation for getting rid of him this year. And if he'd stayed with us the season beyond that, he'd probably be retired and we'd end up with nothing. We did the absolute best thing for us, and that's what matters to me right now. But he also was the guy who got me into the game in the first place. He's the guy who meant that initially I was a Lions fan. He really bought my allegiance. And I still wanted him to do well, and I'm still glad that he won. I hate that the Rams won, but I'm glad that Stanley won. And that's fine. You're allowed. You are allowed. And and I just want to say that anyone who's out there parroting that the Rams have won this trade, stop talking out your arse. Yeah. Two-thirds of the trade ain't even done yet. So it's, you can't say the Rams were always going to win their part of the trade first. Instant gratification because they're in win now mode. Ours was always going to be a long build and we'll not know whether we made the right decision for at least two or three more years till our first rounders have bedded in or whatever but, we do with them, whether we trade down for more guys. Um, but I've, I've seen yeah. Rico and all that crap saying, oh, Brad Holmes is looking out for his boys back with the Rams. He screwed us on this trade. It's just like... Garbage journalism. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we do with the picks because that doesn't tell us whether the trade was value or not. They are two separate decisions. Is the trade good value, yes or no, is defined at the moment you make the trade. Whether what you do with what the trade happens makes it worth it or not is something else entirely. But did we get... Was the trade inevitable? Yes. Did we get the most we could in the trade? Did people nationally think that we got about what the value was for him or greater? Yes. We won the trade. Ignore what happened with the Rams. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't care about the Rams side of it. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not if we win, you lose. And it's not if you win, we lose. That's not how this game works. Both sides can win. So I'm just going to ignore the Rams. At the moment we made the trade, we made the absolute best of what could happen. We won the trade. Now, we have the picks. Do we make use of them? Separate matter. Brad Holmes could be fired before we make those trades. Sorry, before we make those picks. Like, that doesn't change whether the decision he made at the time was a good decision or not. Now, obviously, Holmes isn't going. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Like, I'm saying, hypothetically, if he made that trade and then for some reason he had to leave a personal problem or something like that, and you were just looking at his era, and you were just like, was the trade worth it? You take the trade on its merits at the time. It was the best trade we could make. What we do with it is different. What we do with it is a separate decision. And that's down to the scouting process we have. It's down to what we value at the time. It's down to how strong we think the draft classes are in various positions, which we've already talked about. But they are separate decisions. And I hate the fact that people want to come together what we do with the picks, with how valuable the trade was. Because they're different things. Mm, maybe. I do disagree slightly there. I do think what we get from it, it, it represents, you know, if, if we are going to sell our best players, we want to make sure we've got a guy who will take advantage of those picks. 
Well, I, 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 I guess I, I guess what I'm trying to you is if we'd taken a worse trade but did better picking with those picks, would you say that the trade was more worth it for the worst picks? Yeah, but then you're talking a theoretical scenario because we'd probably know a lot of it by now because we'd have picked twice in the first round last year. No, so no, but we'd I'm not have even a lot more of a... But, but, but that's not the hypothetical thing I'm trying to talk about. I'm not saying this trade or that trade. I'm saying, let's say the Rams offered us a second and a third in, in the upcoming draft. And we said, yeah, okay, let's do that. And then the second and third we picked turned out to be all pro players in their rookie year. Let's just do this ridiculous hypothetical scenario where the players we pick were exceptional. And it's like, okay, fine, we picked really well. That doesn't make the trade good. It just means that your scouting process was excellent. The separation between your scouting process and what you do with the picks and how good the trade was is different. It just is. Like, We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> agree to disagree on this one. Oh, my God. I want to convince you it was so bad, but we've been running for long enough, so... I won't. Let's move on to the little bit of lines breaking before we sign off, because you've been going for over four hours now, and I can't have you here too much longer. Um, you need you need your view suite. Actually, that's really no. Um, anyway, never mind. <laughs> I'm, well beyond, I'm well beyond that. <laughs> um, that's why at 32 I'm spending my Valentine's Day alone. So oh. you know. yeah, feel bad. Feel Love bad about man. that remark. Can't say um, mad. <laughs> so go on. What's this breaking news? So Ash revealed to us that Mark DeLeone, the inside linebacker's coach, has been released from the Detroit Lions. So the Lions are looking for a new inside linebacker's coach. Um, the news was first revealed by Justin Rogers of the Detroit News, and he highlights two people who might replace Mark DeLeone. Um, the first, if I read down this, is Stephen Thomas. So he's been with the Lions since 2019. He's coached the inside linebackers before and served as the special teams coordinator during two stints at Princeton University, toting six years. The other option he highlights is David Corral. He's the Lions' director of football research, a title he's held for the past four years. But in a previous life in college and the NFL, he's worked with linebackers with the Miami Dolphins, where he worked with Dan Campbell. So there's two potential internal replacements for the role. A little bit of a shock for me. I mean, Jamie Collins obviously hampered that room significantly. But afterwards, Alex Anzalone had a little bit of a bump. We also had really good play from players like Jamie Reeves, maybe who kind of, even though he's more of an outside linebacker type guy, actually came into a bit more of a mic role and played quite well. I thought Reeves maybe looks like he might be in line for a, a new deal, especially considering he was with the Lions scouts at the Senior Bowl, kind of scouting players for them, which was insane to see, considering he's a pending free agent. Um, maybe this is driven by De Leon himself. No one really knows at this point, but I was a little bit taken aback by that. I don't know about you. Mm, I don't know. It, it depends what's gone on there. I mean, Barnes didn't show any significant improvement as the season went on. His progress stalled, whereas all the other rookies got better. Barnes were never able to command a good share of the snaps. He fell behind Reeves, maybe in the pecking order. So are they looking at that and going, hmm, all these other guys are developing our rookies, but this one not really come through on this, and we're probably about to invest some good money in the linebacker position. Is this the guy we want? I, I don't know. I, I, I would like to have seen him get some better talent and work with that and see how he did. But if they think the decision's right now, to be fair, they've made good decisions on all the staff so far. They felt the time was for Lynn to go. They got rid of him. 
So we'll see what happens. All I will say is that Luke Keithley has coached tight as coach linebackers for the Panthers, and they let him go recently. You want former players here? I'd kill to get him here. I'd fly him in first class and give him a right wage. You get Luke Keithley getting your inside linebackers trained up. They'll have him good in a year. Sounds like I'd, a plan, my man. I'd love that. I know it's it's not going to happen because he's probably a born Red Panthers guy and would have to move a long way to do it, but that would be the dream. Get Luke Keithley in to get them trained up. Ah, Carolina and, and Michigan are that far away. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, anything else that you want to touch on before we sign off here? You what, sorry? Sorry, anything you want to touch on before we sign off? No, as you say, done a lot today. So I think we've, we've covered just about everything. We can save all the free agency talk for Monday. We can, we can. So yes, our next episode, Monday, February 21st, as Ant has said, a really big one. We're talking about the offense. The Detroit Lions free agency incoming and outgoing. So it's going to be a really, really big one. Lots of debate back and forth on that. You will not want to miss it. Royal the Lions College Football Podcast was on earlier this evening and and you talked about Oh, sorry, this earlier this evening. Yeah, we talked about uh, the Indianapolis Combine, the Pro Day schedule coming up and we did our college awards as well. So that was good fun. Some uh, good recipients in there. Yeah, don't forget to check that out on our YouTube and Twitch channels and it will be on the audio pods ASAP as well. And next week, Rural Lands College Podcast will be having its first guest celebrating its 25th show. It's going to be having Michigan State podcaster on. He's an American who's out in Germany now living and that's going to be a really interesting Europhile podcast for um, Big Ten fans, especially in college ball. We're going to be looking at draft prospects from the Big all right, just remains me to go through our socials. Rural the Lions UK on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook group for worldwide fans, Detroit Lions fans, UK one pride worldwide, and the website. I've been saying it for some time now, but the Rural the Lions UK.com website is gaining traction. So we've got one new writer in Ash Soden, and he had a really interesting article which blew up actually on Facebook, especially about why the Lions draft Kyle Hamilton too. I would not necessarily say that that is a thing that you must do, but I think everyone on the pod thinks it's potentially the better line of attack. Um, and if you want to check that out, that is out on the website. I reviewed Brad Holmes' this first year in charge, although I didn't touch on the UDFAs. Blame me for that if you'd like. But that um, article is up there too. But actually, in the last day, I have just told someone that we are going to be taking them on as well. So that's going to be really cool too. He has got an article on why the Lions should pick it to, even if they can trade down, they should stay where they are. So look for that article to drop shortly on the website. Just remains for me to thank my co-host, and he's done a four-hour stint here and deserves a good bath, a pint, and a nice sleep. Thank you, man, for coming on back-to-back. Appreciate you. It's been good. Love it. I love it. I love it. I'll probably drop in on Luke for a little bit now and then call it quits for the day has to be done right thank you my man my name's matthew turner thank you to everyone for watching especially with the problems we've had with the storm here if you're still there love you
Thank you very much. We'll see you next time for the Royal Lions podcast on Monday. Offensive free agency stuff. Let's go, Lions. One pride. One pride.